What's up, everyone? This is Shiragam, and I want to welcome you to episode 53 of the Hashishin, brought to you by Rosin Evolution, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com. As always, thank you for tuning in. On today's episode, we get to hear from Marley of Kenjana Extracts. We talk about his connection to cannabis from an early age and how his mother played an influential role in his approach to it. He tells us about why he prefers fresh press, some of his cultivation philosophies, and much more. So definitely stay tuned for it. Shout out to Zach Brown Glass for hooking up all our guests with the best ceiling carb caps in the game. You can grab them on Instagram at Zach Brown Glass or on his website, ZachBrownGlass.com. Shout out to every person that makes up our community on Patreon. Without their continued support, we would not be able to continue bringing you episodes. So thanks to each and every one of you again. If you would ever like to support the podcast, get access to early releases, additional interviews, and more, you can do so at patreon.com backslash the Hashishin. That's the Hashish I-N-N through our Instagram bio at the Hashishin or on our website, thehashishin.com. Also, a shout out to another big reason that we can keep the podcast rolling, our awesome sponsors, including our partners at Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game, who again, you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100, where you'll find the best deal in hash, Rosin Evolution's trusty and affordable full mesh wash bags, as well as their tried and true rosin bags, trusted by hash makers all over the country from small batch to commercial so if you wash hash or press rosin rosin evolution has got you covered with their unmatched products and customer service they're your one-stop shop for anything rosin and to save an additional five percent while supporting the podcast use our savings code the letters thi the number 710 that's thi 710 altogether saves you five percent at checkout at rosinevolution.com shout out to one of the true legacy glass brands toro who you can visit on their site toroglassgallery.com or on their instagram at toro underscore glass they've been pioneering functional glass art since the early 2000s toro stays at the forefront of innovation where their passion for cannabis and its resin has inspired them to create new ways for us all to consume it while maintaining their extremely high standards of quality so no matter where you are in the world whether you're looking for quartz or high-end glass art that focuses on high-end function and design visit toro at toroglassgallery.com or again on their instagram at toro underscore glass shout out to our homies hash head outfitters who you can follow on instagram at hash head outfitters or on their site hashheadoutfitters.com where they focus on small batch high grade clothing for hash lovers that gets you feeling extra cozy with that dab i love wearing all my hashers gear they're a perfect blend of quality and comfort you can feel good in that the 100 cotton is sourced responsibly and you can look great in the sick colorways that they've been dropping so if you want to feel comfortable while you're sessioning check out our new friends who cater to hash lovers lifestyles hash head outfitters again on instagram at hash head outfitters or on their website hashheadoutfitters.com 
Again, a shout out to Zach Brown Glass for hooking up our guests with my favorite carb cap in the game. You can check out his V2 series at ZachBrownGlass.com or on Instagram at ZachBrownGlass. I really appreciate you listening and I certainly hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to episode 53 of the Hashishin. I'm your host, Sharagam Amir. Today, I am beyond stoked to be here with Marley of Kenjana Extracts. You can follow them on Instagram at Kenjana, that's K-E-N-J-A-N-A underscore Extracts. What's up, Marley? How are you today? Yo, yo, what's up, man? Stoked to be here. This is going to be awesome. Yeah, likewise. Stoked to have you, man. I know we've kind of met a few times. I think the first time I met you was at the Ego Clash a few years ago. And uh, I know we've, you know, talked since then. So it's really good to see you again and, and really good to connect with you again, man. Yeah, you as well. Yeah, that was a great time. Actually, what was it that I smoked of yours at the Ego Clash? Now, I wasn't even going to start there, but now my, my mind goes there. So what was it that you gave me that I think it was what you competed with that year? Yeah, that was the uh, papaya backcross. That was from Bloom Seed Co. It was a nice papaya straw guava cross. And that one just had super loud terps on it. I really enjoyed it. Produced some pretty good melt for papaya. So that was a good one. Yeah, that's a funny thing that we've heard on the podcast a few times where people talk about papaya not necessarily being the best in the milk category. You know, the flavor category is usually a pretty good thing on it, but you competed with it. Was that the first time that you had actually gone to a competition? Yeah, that was my uh, first competition and my first time competing in a milk category. You know, I guess same, same. Yeah, I was, I was stoked with the opportunity and it was a really amazing time. I think I placed like 12th or so, so not the not the best, but not the worst. And I was happy with it, you know, for as far as my first hash competition and it being the Ego Clash. Yeah, that's cool, man. It's a stiff competition. So I would say 12th there is pretty darn good anyways. And yeah, I do remember it being pretty good. And I remember it being pretty melty. Uh, is that something that you hunted yourself? Yeah, I hunted that one over winter time. And just a little uh, LED operation I was doing. Yeah, I really liked that. Two Finos, and I really liked one of them. It was just crazy loud papaya. Like, every time I was around the plants or washing, it was just really, really powerful terps on it. So I was like, I'm going to enter this one and see see what it does. It was down to, like, uh, that and the pancakes. I had a jar of both right there, and it was kind of a last-minute you know, right at, at the intake, I was trying to decide which one's it going to be, you know. I'm curious why you chose to go with the pie versus the pancakes, because we talked about the pancakes and we will talk about it. So in contrast to it, why was it that you chose the papaya? You know, I was just thought that the Terps would really um, kind of stand out. Like I, I had heard that a lot of people had entered papaya maybe the last year. And so I was thinking that there wouldn't be as many. And uh, there wasn't really a lot of papaya at all. So it kind of stood out. I also just really enjoyed smoking it. It was like one of my favorites that season. And feedback from other people I was getting was that it was really nice and really good, good melt on it. Speaking of melt, do you usually smoke melt personally? Yeah, I usually try to test everything in melt just to gauge it and try to hit that next level, you know, because... You can always tell kind of how something is going to melt based on how it's washing and how you can, how you scoop it out of the bag, how greasy it is and how clean it is. And you can tell pretty well by the finger press 
if it has contaminant or, you know, how much it presses out like rosin. I always try to test everything in melt and just see if it's, if it's that next best melt strain for me. Do you put out a lot of melt or mostly rosin? Anything that's going to be quality in my eyes as far as strong terps off the nose, good melt quality, not very much contamination. Uh, I'll try to put out some melt of it for sure because there is like a good amount of people that really, really enjoy getting melt. And so that's just a nice, a nice niche to kind of fill, you know, and get in there. I also really enjoy smoking it. So if I, if I'm really enjoying it, I'll say, yeah, I'll put some of that out. Do you find any correlation between doing these melt tests that you're interested in doing and how that translates into rosin, for example? Like if it's a really good melt strain, is it almost practically guaranteed to make great rosin? Is that part of kind of what you're looking for when looking at the melt since you're putting out mostly rosin anyways? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I feel like it translates really well. And I feel like if something is superior in melt, then it's going to be really good in rosin as well. I feel like stability in melt is a big thing. Like you don't want that hash to cake up in like even, you know, a week's time. Like I want the stability on the melt to stay nice and greasy and stay from caking up for like a good amount of time. And I feel like if it does that in melt, it translates to the rosin as well, which leads to like a really good fresh press because I feel like people like the fresh press to stay nice and stable for a while. And I feel like it also contributes to the cold cure because a lot of the best cold cures, like most wet cold cures I've done, I feel like have been really stable. And um, yeah, just the ones that kind of cold cure quicker or the quicker ones to cake up and hash, I feel like don't necessarily come out super, super wet in cold cure. And if you had to define stability, would it just be the fact that something takes a longer time to change in form, for example? Yeah, yeah. The longer, longer time period to nucleate for it to start curing up. I usually like it when the fresh press stays in a fresh press form for a little while. Speaking of fresh press, the pancakes, which I brought up earlier, has kind of become one of your let's call it staple strains, I feel like. And you are telling me that that one really stays stable for a long time. And that's part of the reason you like presenting it in fresh press. How often do you see that in genetics? I would say part of it is like the processing techniques. But as far as strains, I would say maybe like, I see it 25% of the time when it stays stable for like a really, really long time period. It's not always a guarantee. It also has something to do with cultivation, you know, certain certain times of the year. I feel like I feel like my full term can stay stable a little bit longer than like the spring light depths. And then I also feel like the temperature you're pressing at can affect the stability. Like I usually like to press around 175, 180. And I notice if I start pressing lower and lower, then it starts to cure up a little bit quicker. Yeah, I think that's partly just because of a little bit longer time on the plates. It'll kind of nucleate a little bit quicker because it's been exposed to that heat for longer. 
And when you said that it had to do some with the processing, is that mostly what you were referring to? Yeah, definitely. I would say the pressing. Washing, you know, it doesn't really affect it. But the press temperature, I feel like, is what affects it. That's one reason that I, I usually like will triple bag my stuff. I'll use 225U micron bags, and then I'll use a 90U micron bag because the 90 gives it like much more of a grittier texture on the outside of the bag. And so the plates can kind of just catch that patty super easily without any risk of it slipping around on the press or anything like that happening. And I feel like because it can like catch it quicker, I'm able to press harder, faster, and, and that which leads to me getting the rosin off the plates quicker. And has that become mostly like your preferred method to do fresh press? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I always try to go with the triple bag, even for cold cure. And I feel like it just really contributes to a really nice, stable fresh press. So that's usually what I always do. But additionally, I was saying, is fresh press like your main thing? Is that what you mostly like to put? Uh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I say fresh press is my main thing. I'll do some cold cures once in a while for sure, just to kind of switch it up. But for the most part, I almost always do fresh press. And sometimes some strains just, they're not necessarily that loud in fresh press. And so most of the times I won't, won't really release those. You know, you can kind of get them to cold cure and get that nose to pop on it more, which is nice. But I just kind of, if, it, if it's not passing that test for me, I try not to release it. And again, going back to the question of how many of these strains you see are stable in fresh press, you brought up the smell. And I agree with you. You don't see a lot of fresh press that has like a really strong smell off it typically. Uh, again, going back to the pancakes, the pancakes, I believe you said, is one of those. How often do you see those varieties come across? I feel like those ones are really rare. The combination of the nose popping like that and the stability is kind of the really rare factor. There's a lot that kind of will have a nice nose on them, but the stability isn't quite there and they'll kind of cure up kind of quick. I feel like the combination of those two is super rare and that's what lends to like the pancakes being special. I haven't seen a ton of other strains that do that, but there definitely is a good amount of them out there. And what would you say are some of the factors that contribute to you being into this fresh press form more so than, for example, the cold cures? Not that you don't do them. I just feel like it's the freshest kind of expression of the rosin. I really value that. And I really enjoy smoking. It's my favorite consistency to smoke personally. So I just want to be able to present that to people because there is a lot of cold cure, but I feel like I'm starting to see a lot more people putting out fresh press, which is really cool to see because I do enjoy it so much. <laughs> do you find it a challenge, for example, that from your hands to, for example, the consumer's hands, that fresh press might not stay so fresh, or do you just see it as part of the natural curing process regardless? Yeah, I feel like that I have to kind of put a lot of trust into the people that I work with you know, for them to preserve it properly and to like, I'll always bring like a bunch of extra ice packs when I meet with people just, just in case they don't have any, you know, cause I don't want to take the chance of stuff, uh, nucleating before the consumers can get it. And I feel like most of the time, you know, the reps really understand that they want to be able to present that as well. So 
it just goes with working with people who, you know, have like-minded visions and stuff like that. You've brought up the word nucleation a few times. Is there parts of that process that you enjoy more in the rosin? For example, when it first starts turning from fresh press, or does that vary again from genetics to genetic? Yeah, I kind of, uh, I really enjoy the whole process, really. You know, the fresh press is kind of, that's one of the reasons I like doing the fresh press too, is so that people can experience the full range of turf profiles and just how it changes and nucleation. And I love diving into the jar when it's like half nucleated, you know, half cured up, you know, it's just kind of the best of both worlds for me. You know, sometimes when it cakes up, it, you know, it can kind of be a bummer, but I feel like at that point, if it's really quality rosin, you can mash it up real quick and make a little cold cure right there. So you kind of get that experience of the strain as well. So you brought this up, but do you feel like there is a change from, for example, the fresh press to the fully nucleated form, in this case, particularly for like taste? Yeah, yeah. I feel like the terps do change, you know, whether they come, become more pronounced or other profiles start to come out more. I feel like it does change over time. And I just really like people being able to experience that full range. Some stuff, you know, will cure up and not be as nice as it was in the fresh press. And, and so that's why I always try to just test my stuff out and, and let it cure up at room temp, you know, before I release it just to see what it does. Yeah, I've found personally with some fresh presses, like they don't have much of a smell or aroma coming off them in that form. But then when you dab them, they kind of open up almost explosively. It's almost like all these things are trapped in there. And then upon applying heat to it, it's like letting it all out. Do you have a similar experience at all? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I feel like that's just part of the things that you experience with it. And I really enjoy it for sure, because it just feels like it's the freshest expression, you know, and you're not you're not missing out on anything, you know, like I love cold cure. But yeah, sometimes I feel like you can kind of miss out on some of these things as it's in that cure process because it is going through whether it be um, just exposed to room temp briefly and, and put in the fridge or just at room temp for the whole time. It just kind of changes a little bit and you kind of miss a couple of these things. But then there's so many like really good things about it, you know, as far as like stability and, and cold care, you know, just that it can travel really well. It can, you know, you don't really have to be as knowledgeable about preserving the terps when it's in cold care. You can just kind of like be, let it do whatever it does and, and it'll be fine. Yeah, I think I've heard the sentiment is almost like it gives it a lot more longevity without having to be necessarily so like meticulous about caring for it. Definitely, definitely. So we brought this up multiple times already, the pancakes. Let's talk about why you like it and tell us a little bit about, for example, where it came from. Yeah, I love the pancakes. You know, it's my favorite thing to smoke. You know, it's super loud right out the jar. I really enjoy growing it because it's a shorter, stockier plant. I know that like a lot of people kind of had trouble growing it. I just kind of enjoy it. Not only that, but it's like really works medicinally for me. It just is my favorite flavor to smoke, just turp wise and just, you know, as far as medicine. So you mentioned the structure and you said some people might not particularly like 
that kind of lower bushy structure. But in our private conversation, you told me you prefer that. And there are other plants like it that have that similar structure that you like. Why is it? You know, I feel like part of that is because I'm not like the tallest person, you know, like <laughs> I'm probably like five, nine or so, you know. So I've had a lot of experience with just like gigantic, super tall plants. And uh, I found that I just like stuff that I can see the tops of it. I can do quality control on all the top nugs and just um, be able to go all the way around the plant and inspect it. Just works great for me. Like it's one of those strains that I don't need to top at all. And it just bushes out super wide. I enjoy that as well. It's less, uh, less, less time having to contain the plant and try to do that. You know, I can just kind of rock with it. And you mentioned the profile and its effect on you being something that, again, draws you to it. If you had to describe the terps on it or the profile on it, what would it be? I would say it's just super relaxing. You know, it's really like mind expanding, makes me really creative, you know, eases any back tension I have. And the turp profile on it is like really, really close to like buttery, syrupy pancakes, like fresh in the morning, you know, type of vibe. And uh, it's got that sweetness to it and it's got a lot of creaminess to it as well. But then also some kind of like a little bit of like earthy gas in there. Yeah, I just I just really enjoy it. And I feel like the turp profile off the nose really translates well into how it smokes. So I like that as well. You mentioned that sometimes people, based on the name, don't have the most positive connotation of the pancakes. And we talked about how there's a variety of different pancakes at this point. What's, for example, the difference between that cut and, say, some of the other stuff that you've seen, if you've seen other pancakes? Yeah, so I haven't actually like tried out a lot of the other pancakes just because I've been so set on my own. This cut was sourced from a buddy who got it from a friend who got it from Emerald Triangle Organics. I think this was when he was up in Humboldt, if I'm not mistaken, but I think he's up in Oregon now. But he just did a great job on selection on that. He pheno hunted it. Yeah, I'm just impressed with it every time. And yeah, I have heard like comments from other people trying other pancakes cuts that it's just kind of not not anything special, you know, but when I give them a jar of this one, they're always like pleasantly surprised. It's just really nice to see, you know, people's opinion on it change like that. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. And part of the reason I bring it up is because I'm guessing that's not like the only variety that that's happened to, right? Is like there's names can be, can muddy things up. And so I just thought that there was an interesting aspect where for you, that's basically one of your best plants out of your garden, one of your favorite plants. But because there's all these other different versions from different people that maybe came out at later times or different selections, other people who haven't tried yours in particular might have their own thoughts about pancakes. Yeah, yeah. And I don't really see the uh, the pancakes cut from Emerald Triangle floating around as much anymore, too. It kind of, I feel like a lot of people grew it for flour and it was just a little more tricky to grow for flour and they maybe stopped, you know, but... Um, I feel like some of the other pancakes cuts were a little little more widespread, maybe, and just had more access to them. But yeah, this one's just the real deal. And I definitely look forward to trying to get some more selections from uh, Emerald Triangle. 
And you told me that you feel like you were probably one of the few people actually washing these pancakes when you first got it. You just mentioned some people growing it mostly for flour and it being a challenging thing to grow for flour. Since you were washing it and your intention was different, how do you see those differences being? For example, growing that variety for flour versus growing it for hash. Is there a difference? Yeah, I feel like there is a little bit of a difference. It's just, uh, it can be a little bit, um, the branches can be a little bit weak on it. And so I feel like it's just a little bit trickier for flowers. You know, I feel like there was a couple other people that I maybe saw washing it at the time when it was, when it was getting released. But um, I didn't see too many other people stick with it. It was just something really special to me. And then seeing how everybody else responded to it as well was just uh, an indicator that this is something really special, you know, that that's not being seen as much on the market. But yeah, it is, you know, I, I feel like as far as like people growing for resin, it kind of doesn't matter as much how the plant grows because you're looking just for that that really quality resin. You're not necessarily looking for like a super dense, nice structured bud that's, you know, got some purple on it. You're kind of just looking at the final outcome from the wash. So I feel like after seeing the quality on it, I just knew that that it was going to be a good one. And the the flower's not necessarily bad on it. You know, it's, the flower actually comes out really nice too. It's one of my favorite flowers to smoke as well. So that was another thing that I really liked about it. But yeah, it, it doesn't get purple at all, you know, and it tends to be a little bit, little bit airier than what most people might like. Yeah, as far as resin go, it just crushes it. And you were saying at this point, you're all fresh frozen. When did that shift over from still doing some dry flour, if not all? Yeah, I feel like that switched probably around... 2019, 2020 or so, because I was still drying some for flower at that point. I was still dedicating a good portion of my garden to flower because I had like really consistent people that were enjoying the flower. Once I saw like how I can kind of see where all the hash goes was like a big thing for me, like just seeing all the medical patients that it can get to and hearing their response from it. You know, just from having the brand out there and putting the hash out, it was just really cool thing to see. I really like that compared to, you know, just moving a lot of pounds and it just kind of going all over the place, you know, which is totally fine too, because the medicine is going to get out there and help people no matter what. But I feel like getting that feedback was really, really cool and uh, really helpful just in honing in on what I want to grow and how I want to grow. Do you feel like that switch over to focusing on growing strictly for resin via fresh frozen, for example, in this case, has made you a better cultivator? Yeah, I would say a better cultivator for resin for sure, because there are slightly different things, you know, like you don't necessarily want to take stuff to the fullest maturity every time where I feel like as far as flour, I tried to always like, if it looks like it's done, let it go one more week you know, denseness of it and the chirps on it would just always pop. But um, as far as resin goes, I feel like it's very much more looking at the glands and like recognizing that stage when they're all milky and then they're starting to get amber, you know, and they get whatever it is, 15, 20, 25% ambers. And 
you know, 50, 60% milky and then some still clear. I feel like that's a really good point to start pulling stuff. How did that process of development go for you from going on being focused on the flower and, for example, the different characteristics that come with that, like you said, pulling it at a later point? Maybe it's bulkier, maybe it's terpier, but then when you're pulling for the resin, you're seeing different things. How was that kind of process of learning for you through the hash making? Just being able to see it start to finish, you know, and seeing what times you're pulling certain cultivars and how they express themselves in the hash and in the rosin. And I feel like that was just really helped. A lot of times you'll see stuff on the plant and it just, it just kind of expresses itself a little bit differently in the hash. It's just nice to be able to gauge these things by like pulling some stuff right on time, pulling some stuff a little later, and then comparing the hash and the rosin and seeing what the differences are. You know, if something's maybe less terpy, more terpy, more potent, less potent, and then kind of trying to find that fine line where you get the best of both. When do you think it like clicked for you if it happened like that for you that really the medicine was in the resin and in the glands versus in like the plant or the buds themselves? I feel like it really clicked when I just started getting more strains that spoke to me, like as far as the pancakes goes. But, you know, it's nothing to take away from the flower because I feel like the flower is such a powerful medicine as well. You know, it's kind of like they're both really amazing, you know, in my opinion. But uh, there are some people that maybe, you know, can't ingest as much, you know, smoke and have lung stuff. You know, seeing people like that react to how good the hash was, was a big indicator as well. Yeah, I agree with you in regards to they can both have their different medicinal effects and different levels of power as well. For example, I don't really smoke any flower anymore, which is weird for me to say and think. But at the same time, when I do, and if I do, it definitely gets me super lit and in a particular way that maybe the the hash doesn't. It's like for me personally, it's like a more full-bodied, to a certain degree, there's a little more grogginess typically involved than when just smoking the resin. So I agree that they can both be powerful, but it's just interesting to notate how it can be different as well. Yeah, definitely. I feel like that's very common for a lot of, you know, a lot of us heavy hash smokers is when we smoke some flour again, it just hits different, you know, and it's just a little bit of a fuller spectrum, you know, and I feel like part of that is probably, you know, I feel like myself included, you know, a lot of other hash makers as well. Like most people pull the 45U out and a lot of times those higher microns, if they have a lot of contaminant as well, because it, it leads to, you know, having a kind of a dirtier banger as far as smoking. And sometimes the terps in the 45U aren't necessarily on par. You know, most of the times they're not on par with the, with the 90 or the 120 and so I feel like a lot of times that'll get pulled out. And so that's a reason, you know, for the four spectrum, why flower will hit different. I feel like there's also just so much in the flower too that hasn't been explored yet or researched, you know, there's like not really like, you know, big grants for labs to explore this stuff because they don't really, you know, want people to find out how, you know, how, how many different diseases and such it can help. 
But every time I'm like pouring out or draining out the hash water, you know, I'm I'm thinking like, man, I bet you there's so many cannabinoids and stuff in this that's, you know, we're just not able to pull through through the hash bags, you know, because if you drink that water still, you know, after putting it through the screens, it's it's still going to get you lit for sure. You know, that's just something that hasn't really been explored, but I feel like it is something that you maybe do get from smoking flour or ingesting it in edibles or something. Yeah, that's a good point. Not something I had really considered. Yeah, that water is just, you know, it's it's special, you know, and uh <laughs> oh, like I just, you know, have mine drained out to my compost or to my garden, but I know that there's something in there that's, you know, they say cannabis has so many different cannabinoids, you know, but we're mainly focused on on THC and uh, CBD. But I feel like there is a lot more to be researched. Yeah, for sure. I think they're finding things out pretty often now. You know, recently there was some other cannabinoid that they discovered. So surely there's lots of things to be discovered uh, still, you know. Yeah, yeah. And also just the volatile terpenes that, you know, kind of get drained off through the freeze dryer. I feel like that's really, well, it's really cool to see so many people air drying and just seeing the different expression of the hash in air dried form because, you know, there is a lot that, and, and it's not that necessarily stuff isn't off-gassing like in the air drying process, some of these same volatile terpenes, but there is a lot that comes off when you drain the freeze dryer. And so I feel like that's another thing that's probably maybe in the in the flower as well, you know, especially with people who really take the time and know how to cure stuff really nicely. Do you still personally consume a lot of flour? Yeah, I feel like it's off and on, you know, I feel like I mostly, I like to test like everything that I grow. I like to try, you know, a little bit of flour of everything and uh, just see, see how it is. And I also just, you know, like seeing other really good growers and, you know, who are just doing flour. I love trying their stuff for sure. Say it's still probably like, 90 percent 10 percent hash to flour but yeah i really enjoy some good flour you know I, I love it definitely yeah i feel like you know hash and rosin just it's just what hits for me personally you know just like you said every time you know I'll smoke some good flour it, it does hit different and it's nice to just always have that full spectrum of you know cannabis affecting you and you know same with edibles like as far as like cozy cubes big up cozy cubes they're like best edible gummy maker in the game right now in my opinion i love their stuff and they just do so much with their with their products you know from the flavors to like just how they pair everything with the hash and just their techniques and their ingredients you know they really know what they're doing and i feel like ingesting those hits on a whole nother spectrum too than the hash and the flour you know so it's nice to just get it all you know <laughs> yeah, I agree. They all have like different effects and different roles and they all can help out in different ways. I know, for example, for me, it's really helpful to have edibles for like my physical body. You know, it, it definitely goes a long way, for example, versus taking dabs. Dabs like helps relax the body, but the edibles does it in a different way or, or another kind of level almost. Totally. Yeah, yeah. It's it can be a whole nother level of relaxation sometimes when you hit, when you eat a couple a couple cozy cubes, you know, or a couple edibles. <laughs> sometimes gets you to a a stage that you know you can't. It's hard to get to from dabbing or smoking flour. <laughs> 
you know, there's also, you know, you, you know, you also want to always remember moderation. I feel like, cause, uh, you can end up overdoing it sometimes and then just be mumbling everything. And <laughs> I've had a couple of times like that, just, you know, like too many, too many edibles in middle of dinner. And I'm just like, <laughs> my wife will be like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm all fine. <laughs> this food is trippy though, right? <laughs> yeah, I agree, man. Edibles can definitely be strong. I mean, you said this about ash itself and, Part of the reason you told me that it attracted you when you first started getting into it is you called it a strong medicine. And I mean, edibles are certainly that, especially if they're made from, you know, hash oil or hash itself, they're definitely going to carry a punch. And it's one of those things where like, you can't go back on it. And it's, you know, there's no uh, peak almost like when you take a dab and then the coming down, it's like that they can come in waves. So for sure, it's good to be careful. Yeah, yeah. You got to ride that wave. <laughs> but yeah, and just as far as like hash and rosin edibles go too, I feel like that's, it's just so much superior to like all the distillate edibles and stuff like that. Like, it's just really enjoyable, you know, and and then uh, coming from like the days of just like throwing tons of like bud or trim into some into some cooking oil and infusing that with brownies, you know, there's no like dosage or anything and sometimes it'll kind of like taste like flour you know which can be enjoyable sometimes you know it's just it's just on another level and i and i really enjoy it for sure yeah i agree i've tried the cozy cubes they're really good they have good cool flavors and beyond that i really like the texture of their gummies but additionally to that i think what i'm trying to get at is i feel like with rosin there's a lot less of like the flavor of the herb in it Versus when you were making it, like you said, with, you know, byproduct of the actual plant. Totally. Yeah, definitely. A hundred percent. A lot of times, like when I collab with them, I'll, I'll send over straight bubble hash, you know, so usually like 70 U, 160 or 45, like only the really best quality stuff, the stuff that I know is going to like melt nicely. So it's, it's easy for them to work with. But, um, I feel like been getting a lot of feedback about how those ones just hit differently than rosin which is just cool to see you know yeah that's pretty interesting i'm sure that they have you know some kind of chemical difference to it that we're probably not knowledgeable enough to know <laughs> yeah totally well cool man i think this could be a good opportunity for a smoke break you down yeah yeah for sure all right cool I'd like to take a moment to give a shout out to everyone who makes up our community on Patreon for allowing us to produce episode 53 with Marley of Kenjana Extracts and to give a special shout out to some of our top contributors, including Terp Wizard in Michigan, Melt Walkie J, Macro Melts in SoCal, the crew at Heritage Hashco Mendocino, Nick the Intern, David of Rosin Evolution, Garland in DC, Rezon Reserve in Michigan, Solventless AF, Kevin of Lifted and Dina, the Chile Relleno Burrito, the Homie Big C, and the Real Cannabis Chris. We appreciate every single one of you. Now back to the episode. So you mentioned that when you were younger, you lived down in Southern California. And then soon after, you and your brother and your mother moved up to Northern California, which I feel like obviously was a big pivotal part in you being closer to cannabis 
So can you tell us how you feel like that changed your trajectory and led you to where you are now? Yeah, totally. Uh, I feel like having moved up here, it was just the perfect time, like in the industry, but also just as a young, a young guy, like getting into, into cannabis, you know, like 12, 13, 14, these formative years of blazing and like, you know, my brother started smoking first and, and then like my best friend. And so I was like, all right, I'm gonna start smoking too and see. And yeah, it was just like so much fun. Like we would go skateboarding like every single day and like just blaze up in the bushes or whatever it was. And like, it was just a cool time. It was a cool time because the weed business was just thriving, you know, it was still going hard. There's just a lot of people with just so much passion in it everywhere. The town that I moved up to was just like this really cool, small weed growing community of a town, you know, like population 1500 and like, you know, everybody knows a big grower, you know, so it was just really cool. And uh, just being in nature that was so like uh, expansive, you know, just like forest on forest and like being able to, you know, like we would start finding little seeds and like my brother and I would just start popping them like in the bushes, like in little pots and stuff like that. And like, it was mainly him, but like, I was always like, what can I do to help? What can I, you know, got to go water them or whatever. And, uh, you know, those ones never really worked out, but it was really cool just to, just to have that experience popping seeds at like 12, 14 or whatever it was. And, you know, that just segued into like meeting so many of these really pivotal weed growers in the community and just through growing up around there and trying all different types of good herb at that age, you know, that was pretty much in the, like the 2007 through 2012. That's when I was like junior high to high school. And, um, there's just like tons of fire weed, you know, like a lot of people are growing really quality. Now your mom played an interesting role in this as well, because she was a cannabis consumer herself. You feel like she taught you certain things about the plant. What were some of those things? Yeah, I feel like, you know, one of the biggest things was just respect for the plant, you know, and um, using it for not not just necessarily to get stoned and to get high, but to use it to be creative, you know, use it if you're in pain, use it if, you know, you're, you know, having some emotions that you're having a hard time with or whatever it is, you know, she always kind of made a strong point to um, try to use it to benefit you to the utmost, you know. And not just to get like super high, which was kind of, you know, where we were at. It was a, it was a big thing for sure. And, and just being open with my mom about smoking weed, you know, like she'd been smoking weed for a long, probably since she was 18 or something like that. And uh, so it was really big for her moving up here to Northern California as well, because she just was able to like meet a lot of these growers. She was, uh, you know, shiatsu massage therapist for like 30, 30 over going on 40 years, you know, through her life. So there's like a huge, a huge need for that at the time with just all the weed growers up here with uh, all their trimmers who are getting paid like really good money, you know, like, so she, you know, she'd work on everybody and, and make really good money and make some really good herb. And so that was just a big thing for her. And, uh, it just segued into us also being able to be friends with all these big growers and also just try out all these really amazing strains of herb. You mentioned a couple of times being able to try good weed up there 
and being around so many talented cultivators, do you feel like that was a good reference for you going forward as somebody who then started cultivating and then hashing, for example, yourself of being like, this is what quality can be, or this is what can be achieved? Yeah, definitely. I feel like it was a great starting reference point. There's just so many fire strains that I'm able to reference now throughout everything and know exactly what they did look like and smell like and taste like. I feel like a lot of the market can get kind of muddled now and like a lot of people don't necessarily like know these original strains that stuff came from because they're kind of, a lot of them are gone, you know? At that time, like I was just getting some really good strains of all different types, you know, Lemon OG Kush and Master Kush and just really nice purples and just around to see the first like cookies start hitting and around to see the first when Blue Dream first came out, you know, I know it's so played out now, but when it first came out, it was, you know, it was on point and everybody like loved it, you know, and uh, just all the hazes and jacks and like train wrecks and, you know, just all these really cool strains, the Larry OG and Rascal OGs and cheeses, you know, cheese was a fire one for a long time and uh, the tangies and so it was just a really good reference point that I use a lot now, especially when pheno hunting and being able to compare it to what I've seen over the years. Through those relationships that you guys fostered as a family and your mom through her work, you were able to develop a apprenticeship or a mentorship of sorts. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, I would say that was like my, my first years really getting into the game and going hard, growing large grow operations and indoor, outdoor greenhouse. It really just shaped like who I am today as far as like my lifestyle and like how I grow cannabis. So that was a really amazing apprenticeship. That was probably from about like the age 20 to 24 or so, maybe 19 to 24. That was just awesome. It was really, really great to have because it gave me so much experience handling nice indoor operations, you know, handling greenhouses, you know, learning, pulling tarps, you know, like just all kinds of stuff and, and how to grow on scale like that, you know, just how to, how to live my life, you know, and it's contributed a lot to, you know, the uh, father and husband that I am now. He's a really good role model in that aspect. The two years before that, I did like some culinary school too, but I pretty much started trimming for him at that same time. And um, around the time I finished like two years of culinary school, I was like doing really good in the growing and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm going into this like <laughs> full time. Going back to having a good relationship with your mom and being able to be open and honest with her about smoking. There was a period there that she wasn't really aware. And I think you told me a funny story where you and your brother popped some of her seeds actually on your rooftop or something. And I was telling you jokingly as a parent myself now that surely she knew about this. But (laughs) the reason I bring it up is how do you feel like, for example, from those first experiments that you and your brother were doing, uh, which, you know, led to a little outdoor together, it translated into like this much bigger kind of scaled up version of cultivating. How much do you feel you grew within those two different kind of pockets of your life? Yeah, I feel like it definitely contributed to like a lot of my passion for it now, just being a 
early on, you know, like becoming a man and learning how to like grow really good cannabis at the same time. And, uh, you know, we were still pretty young then, but yeah, it was second floor of, of the house that we were living in. Like I had my whole room up there and the window opened up right to the roof. And so like me and my bro, we put up probably like 10, you know, 10 to 15 gallon pots up there. And we were scared of going anything bigger because of, you know, the weight on the roof, but it got great sun up there and, and we popped some seeds and like, you know, filled them up with females and it just went, it went great actually. It was a super good grow, but yeah, we were laughing cause like watering, you know, we were like, oh shit, like, is she going to see the water draining off the roof? You know, and <laughs> it was just like too funny, but, um, it ended up being some really good cannabis, you know, super fire. And pretty much the next year was when we kind of, you know, our mom had started catching us smoking and stuff and <laughs> just kind of gave us the whole talk, you know, just about responsible use and just like, just the proper ways to use it, you know? And, um, so that was really cool. And like next year, she pretty much just let us grow down in the yard, you know, it was a really nice yard and we just kind of blew it up, you know, it was mostly my brother, you know, I was just had a, like two plants, two or three plants. He probably had like 15 or so, cause he's my older brother. So, you know, he was allowed to do a little bit more at that age, but, um, so it, it, it went great. Like we did some really good cannabis down in the yard, grew some big old plants, you know, and just seeing like the reaction from all our big time grower friends was just really gave us a lot of confidence. I feel like, and just seeing them try it out and be like, wow, you grew this, you know, like, <laughs> how old are you again? Like you're <laughs> producing some fire weed, you know? And, and they're like, what, you know, where'd you get this strains and this and that? And, you know, it was just really cool. We had, she had a really good friend who was uh, up on Spy Rock up in Laytonville and he was a breeder up there at the time and was breeding some really good seeds and just hooking us up with them to grow some really nice tangy to true OG and cheese to uh, green crack. And I think he also had some some blueberry crosses or something like that. And and it, they all did really good, you know, it's just really fire herb. But yeah, I feel like it did contribute to just where where we're at now because it just, you know, gave us that confidence and that passion to just keep going, you know, and realize like, okay, like we can do some really good weed, you know? And so, yeah, it's, it was a great push motivator in the right direction. Yeah. And like we talked about, it almost created like a sense of validation for you guys for that there was people that you guys looked up to and then they're like, oh, you guys grew this? Like, this is pretty good. Like, and so you're like, oh, I, we can actually do this. And you know, going to the point of genetics, now that you obviously are still working with them, sifting through them, how important do you feel it was like to have uh, those proper genetics from like your mom's contact to be able to grow that fire herb? Yeah, yeah, it, it was definitely very important, you know, and just having those quality genetics that had been like tested up in the hills, you know, on on pretty good scale and, and um being able to grow those ones was definitely, definitely helpful for sure. And now my brother is uh, getting big into the breeding, you know, and starting uh, his F2 lines this year. And uh, he's worked some really nice, found some really nice males and, and worked some really good genetics. So it's just cool to see that even start to transition into that phase. But yeah, the genetics were awesome for sure. I feel like that was probably a around the same time that we like started making hash and stuff like hash was pretty big in my neighborhood. You know, there's a lot of people that were 
making bubble hash and air drying it up here in the hills. And like, you know, this is, this is still in high school. I think it was probably like 15, 15 and 17, me and my brother and, uh, people had some fire varieties. You know, the one homie that taught me probably the most about hash making, he was running some, uh, Tangelo. It was like a Burmese Kush to chem dog cross. And it was just like straight oranges, but with like a lot of power. And that was on point. And uh, he was also running the chem dog from that cross. And he was just making some incredible full melt. You know, he was just wanted to kind of pass that knowledge on. And so he was showing us, you know, the techniques with which he was washing and how he was drying. So that was just really cool. You know, he ended up hooking us up with a couple bubble bags, five gallon. 73 and and the one you know the 190 220 and the 45 and that was pretty much all you know we're running it was like a three bag set or whatever it was and uh there's just so much so much trim around trim was just like crazy in abundance because none of the growers wanted it you know everybody was growing these big grows and they're like well i got like this garage full of contractor bags of trim like i need to just do something with this because otherwise i'm just gonna dump it out in the woods you know and so that was just a perfect opportunity like to use this stuff to like hone in the skills of making hash and and just get into it. And we just always, you know, always do a 50-50 split with the growers because at that, you know, it's a it's a lower split for collabs now. Usually it's like 25-75 or 30-70, but um at that time they were just, you know, just so stoked to get stuff back. So we usually do like 50-50 and it was trimmed it would always come like tons of like fan leaves in there and sticks. And like, you definitely have to like sort through everything and pull out all the stuff that wasn't going to wash. Well, most of the times it would come out dank. Like, you know, a lot of these growers really knew what they were doing, mostly full sun. And it just produced like really good quality hash. Like a lot of it really melty. And even back then, like the standard among me and my buddies, the other ones who had kind of learned how to make hash was like, you know, we would always put a nice pancake on top of a bowl, like fill the whole top of the bowl with a nice pancake and just however long it bubbled, you know, was the standard of the quality. And so that was just kind of like, we were always kind of striving to get the most melty hash. You know, they were producing some really good stuff too, my buddies. They, I don't know if they're still making hash, but yeah, at the time it was definitely like, it was definitely like cool to see and a nice standard. And you got to see a range of resin, including indoor and outdoor. And like you just mentioned, you were finding that the outdoor, for the most part, was quote unquote meltier than the rest of it. Yeah, definitely. It was, you know, I kind of felt bad about that at the start because I was producing all this hash from uh, outdoor trim. And one of my buddies, who was another grower, had come over and he was just hanging out. I think he was actually like getting a, getting a massage from my mom. And then afterwards they finished. I was like, hey, bro, you want to try this hash? You know, like I've been making this this good stuff. It melts nice. And and so I hooked him up and he was a big grower. He had like probably like, you know, like seven, eight indoor grow houses around the mountain and just like had been doing it a really long time. And, you know, he took the hash home and tried it out and called me up, or, you know, or called my mom and was like, that was some of the best hash I've smoked in like a long time. Like that, that was incredible. And so, yeah, that was probably like 16. And he started coming over and like picking up QPs of hash, you know, from the outdoor. And then pretty quickly after that, you know, started bringing over all his trim and contractor bags, which was all from indoor, usually Master Kush. 
So I started running that. And yeah, it just wasn't coming out on the same quality as the outdoor. So I felt kind of bad. It still came out really good. But, you know, that could have potentially just been the strain. Maybe wasn't just the best hasher. But, you know, I just kind of correlated to it, it being from indoor because the fire or the flower from it was just amazing. You know, the Master Kush was just dank, you know, whereas like some of the outdoor ones, they were dank too, but not quite, not nearly like on the level of that indoor. But it was just surprising to see how much more melty the hash was on the outdoor. Was that kind of an important lesson for you to see that and notice that like what the flower looked like didn't necessarily correlate to what the resin was doing and versus some of the outdoor ones might not be as visually pretty, for example, but the resin was? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it definitely kind of just urged me in the direction of I want to, you know, once I start making hash like on a bigger scale, I want to do it all mostly from outdoor because the terps were just really, really nice on it too. You know, just a little bit more terpy than the indoor, I would say. And, uh, you know, ar- around that time too, like I started like moving some to my buddies down in the Bay Area and uh, they had kind of already been on the dab scene. And, and so they were like, taking dabs of it, you know, and I was just smoking it like bubble, like on a, on a bowl or like in a joint, a snake in the, in the grass joint, you know, but they're dabbing it down there and they hit me up and were like, bro, this stuff's melting. Like it's, you know, this is like, how much more of this do you have? And so that was really cool to see, but I still didn't even like really make the connection of like this, this can be a product that most people are going to be dabbing until a couple of years later. So how important do you feel like this, trim phase, let's call it, was for you as a hash maker? Yeah, it's just uh, super great training, you know, seeing a broad spectrum of strains and just like how to work with stuff on scale because there's a lot of trim, you know, I'm like in there working it all through five gallon bags, you know, and (laughs) so it was definitely, um, you know, gave me a sense of like timing on processing material and how to get through stuff like on a quicker scale. And then just also a good reference point for how some stuff would wash. So yeah, it definitely was a great, great starting time. You know, it was great to have my buddies that had already been doing it for a little while and could could kind of like school me on things that I might have been missing also. Do you feel like working with dry trim would be easier for someone that doesn't have experience, for example, in the washing process versus going straight to fresh frozen? Yeah, I feel like in some cases, for sure, like, especially if you're just starting out on like a home scale, I feel like that can definitely be easier starting with trim because uh, it's not as melty. It's not going to like, it's not going to all like coagulate super fast, you know, not nearly as fast as fresh frozen. So it's definitely like a great spot starting on home scale. I'd say like if you were starting in a facility that it was already had all the equipment and everything was like up to running, like you could kind of start off on fresh frozen and just just crush it really. But yeah, I feel like it's a great reference point, you know, for anybody who wants to make hash, you know, and just learning how to do that and air drying as well. You know, I feel like that's definitely a big a big skill point that kind of gets missed out a lot now these days just with the freeze dryer. Yeah, back then it was air drying everything. It was like sieving it. We would just sieve everything onto large platters lined with parchment. 
and just kind of like let it dry at the coolest temperature that we could, leaving the AC running or whatever it was. So I feel like that's that's definitely like an important skill and just like realizing like moisture content, you know, and like, because there's always been those times when you're starting making hash in that in that era where, you know, you press something before it was fully dried and then you see those little spores popping on it like a couple, you know, days later or whatever when you start sealing it in jars. And so that was a really good, um, a really good lesson to learn, you know, that you just have to have that air dried fully, fully completely dry, you know, and my always test was, you know, if it felt like sand when I was running through it with the cart or the spoon, that was usually a good indicator that it was fully dry, but I'd even let it go a little couple, like a couple more days after that, just to make sure. Was that also like a refinement process for you that air drying where maybe some of the earlier stuff was a little wetter than you would have liked it in a few years down the road as a processor? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I feel like, you know, the freeze dryers will really made everything a lot easier. You know, that was definitely like a time when you had to make sure that everything was fully 100% dry. Like a, a big technique that my homie who gave me the wash bags always, he had taught me was when we first pulled out the bag to slap that patty into like a thing of coffee filters, like maybe like 40 coffee filters, you know, the unbleached ones, just the the moisture that those coffee filters can wick out of the hash so quick was just really, really uh, instrumental in drying the hash at the right process, you know, timing and process. And it gets the water out so quick. So that was a really good technique. But we would just slap them in there and wait till, you know, you could you could feel that it was like pretty dry, you know, with the spoon and then throw it in the sieve and and then and then sieve it from there. Do you feel like, for example, with the material when you were washing it, I don't know if you ever had the opportunity to compare and contrast with fresh frozen, but overall, do you feel like some varieties could do better when fried, maybe yield more or something of the sort? Not too much. I haven't done a lot of side-by-side comparisons actually with the air dried and the freeze dryer. I feel like once I got the freeze dryer, I was pretty much off and running on that just from having air dried for so long and, and, you know, having it, it just takes a lot longer, you know, it takes like several days for it to dry and it takes a lot of space to have all those trays, you know, pizza box tech was definitely good because you could stack so many pizza boxes on on a shelving rack, you know, and have the different shelves and multiple pizza boxes on each one and have the top covered. So that saved a lot of space. But yeah, I haven't done as much side to side because I just enjoy working with the freeze dryer at this point. Yeah, you told me there was a point, I think you were renting a trailer from your brother and you had just like hash all over the place inside there drying, I'm imagining, in the pizza boxes. And to clarify, I'm assuming you had parchment on the pizza boxes on the interior. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely always have parchment on those. You always got to have that as a 100% necessity when trying to dry on any surface that's cardboard or like sheet pans or whatever it is. You always want to have that parchment. Yeah, that was that was a really cool time. You know, that was we had like a really super bad wildfire up here that pretty much like took out 70% of my hometown and a lot of the neighboring hometowns. And that took out my 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 home that I had just started leasing. And I moved to this property that uh, my brother and his girlfriend were living at. At that property, that, that house had burnt down too. It was her 
family's house that they had built. So after it burned down, they they kind of built another another house for them to live at, and it was a large property. So, and they they had this really nice trailer for sale. So I bought it from them. Just started hashing pretty solid. The AC unit in that thing was on point. So it was like you know I didn't have a cold room or anything, but I would wash in there when it was too hot. And like during the winter time, I'd be like washing at night, and the temperatures would get super far down. I'd be able to like get some really nice hash and sieve it out, you know, and, but yeah, I had these sheet pans just covered every surface in the trailer, just like with the parchment and just full of hash. That was definitely like a fun time for sure. So going back to my question though, I think maybe I didn't explain it well, but what I was asking is, do you feel like when you dry the material, sometimes it can wash better, not necessarily about the drying of the resin, you know, itself, can it possibly produce more hash if it's dried versus fresh frozen in some cases? I don't think so necessarily. I feel like usually it's about the same because they're both kind of the same coming out of the hash bag, you know, through the washing process, it's going to produce like the same amount of hash. And so I feel like there's not necessarily any yield difference in the hash from air dried to fresh frozen, unless it was something with maybe running out of space to air dry that, you know, would kind of cut the washing short and affect the yield. But I don't think so necessarily that there'd be any difference in the yield from, you know, that's all in just the drying process, I guess. And now why is it that you prefer the freeze dryer? Is it just for convenience sakes or for just like scale sake? Yeah, yeah. Mostly convenience, mostly scale. It's just like a really important instrument. It's really takes out most of the I'd say dangers of maybe not fully air drying, you know, because you can still get wet hash out of a freeze dryer too. Like if you don't, if you load the trays up like way too heavy or if it's not low enough or, you know, sometimes if the shelf temp is not right for like how much hash you have in there, then you can still like pull wet hash out of there. And I feel like that's kind of something that you can watch out for but mostly through like sifting the hash after you pull it out of the freeze dryer. I feel like anything that has moisture in it or water isn't going to go through the sieve. It's like ice, you know? And if you see that, I feel like it's an indicator to really check out that hash that that you're putting through there because it could have moisture in there. But yeah, I mostly use it for convenience. It saves a lot of space. It saves a lot of time. And just, you know, I really enjoy the hash that comes out of it. You can get some really, really, really quality hash out of air drying, though. There's not, you know, the qualities I can I say that they're about, you know, equal if you're doing either one of them correctly. But yeah, I love the freeze dryers. When those rolled around, it was definitely a game changer. <laughs> Do you feel like having the experience with the air dry? And like you said earlier, for example, when you sifted it, it had a particular feel to it. Do you feel like that's also helped you figure out? when you're doing the freeze dryer right as well? Yeah, yeah, definitely just having a point of reference, you know, and yeah, it's definitely like a lot of steps in the process that being able to air dry is kind of like you can recognize certain things. And so it's very helpful for sure. And how long do you feel or how steep of a learning curve do you feel you had with the freeze dryer to getting it to where you feel like it's really on point most of the time? 
yeah, I feel like it was pretty quick, pretty quick off the bat. I feel like, you know, when I got the freeze dryer, I also started listening to your podcast, like just all the time, you know, and it was just giving me so many points and tips and tricks on just how to properly freeze dry. And, you know, I would start listening to it right before I got the freeze dryer. So I already kind of had point of references for how it worked and like the settings and kind of like how you want to operate with it. And so when I got it, it just kind of, I just took off in it, you know, like fish and water and it's just producing really good, good hash, you know, off of the first couple batches. Yeah, that's always so funny to me. We, we talked about that and how the podcast and in any way played any role in this. So that's pretty funny. But, you know, talking about, I think you brought up earlier, one of the things that you can maybe not get right on a freeze dryer is that temp shelf. And you related that to the amount of hash on the shelf. A, what's your ideal amount of hash per tray in the freeze dryer? And B, how much does that affect how you have to adjust those shelf temps? Yeah, I'd say the ideal amount is probably, I would say like maybe 50% to two thirds of the, of the filled up the side of the trays. But anything under that works perfectly fine too. I just feel like once you start getting over, like I feel like two thirds is like kind of my max. And like, I, like I'm only working also with a medium unit freeze dryer. So it might be different and it's just the home use one. So it might be different on pharmaceutical ones or eight tray ones. But I find that once I kind of pass two thirds of filling that tray up, then I'll tend to like see some stuff with like ice on it on the bottom of the big chunk of hash that's in there. But I've also heard that flipping your or or flipping the hash over halfway through or, um, breaking it up into chunks can help with this drying. I haven't experimented with that too much because I just like to keep it simple and keep it standard. But I feel like when it is a thicker trays that I'm filling up in there, I'll kind of tend to do more of like a 40 degree shelf temp. 45 might be like my max. I usually don't go ever go higher than that. I feel like standard, I usually do like 30 to 35 on my shelf temp. And I feel like that dries stuff out perfectly to the point that I want. And sometimes if I have some trays that are super loaded, I'll just put the dry time up for like a couple more hours when it's in that dry process and it starts the clock and you can see that it say has like an hour left. I'll just ramp it up to like three hours or so. And I feel like that really helps. And once it comes out of the freeze dryer, am I understanding this right? That you always sieve it again, basically? Yeah, yeah. I always see it coming out of the freeze dryer. And, you know, sometimes there'll be like little pieces of contaminant maybe or something that, you know, you can get out with the sieve. But then also just making sure that there's no type of ice or anything in there that will like lend to moisture. Even if stuff is like super hard to like get through the sieve, that'll be kind of an indicator to me that like I'm going to dry that for a little bit longer next time. So what do you do in that scenario? You take it out, you're receiving, and you realize there's some ice in it. Do you put it back in the freeze dryer? Or how does that work? Yeah, you can put it back in the freeze dryer. I feel like at that point, most of the time, to be honest, I'll just, you know, I haven't had that happen in probably like two years or something now. But 
if I do see stuff with ice in there, like I don't really have the most success with putting it back in the freeze dryer to dry it. A lot of the times I'll just kind of take that as a loss and just kind of toss it. Okay, cool. Interesting. But I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, there's, there is some tech to putting it back in the freeze dryer and, and figuring out how to get it dried to perfection. I just, you know, once the freeze dryer stops and then starting it again, you can kind of hear that the pump is just kind of like runs a little bit maybe quieter than it was before. And so I just don't really want to put any stress on, on the freeze dryer or the pump. You know, I just want them to be able to just run through the process once and be done. So if I mess up and there's something with ice in there, yeah, it usually gets tossed for me. I have to ask, how has your luck been with freeze dryer so far? I actually haven't had any problems. You know, I'd say that's the only thing that's been there for me, you know, and even that hasn't happened in a while. I think just with me figuring out like how much hash I want to put into each tray, I feel like I was overloading it at the beginning and maybe a little bit. And that's why I was getting those results. But I actually haven't had any problems. You know, I, I just have the standard oil pump. I don't have like the oilless pump. And I just make sure to filter the oil after every time that I use the freeze dryer. And after probably about like maybe five or six uses, I'll change out that oil completely. And then I just keep it pretty standard on the, on the screen, you know, just get my shelf temp to where it's at. I don't really mess with anything else, you know, unless I have to up the dry time. I haven't had any problems. I've had it for, I think, four years now or so. And uh, I, I, it's been going solid for me. And, and you know, that could possibly be, be because it is like an earlier model. At the time that I got it, it was very hard to like find freeze dryers. A lot of times they weren't in stock or weren't shipping. And like, so I actually happened to just find it on Craigslist. You know, some some dude had, you know, bought it and used it once. And, you know, he wasn't really, uh, <laughs> he wasn't really into it. When I, when I met up with him to get it, he was like, yeah, I don't know. I think you have to have like a lot of material to run into one of these. I don't really like. I wasn't having very much success. And I was like, no, no, I got it. I got it. You, you know, <laughs> thanks for the hookup on the price. So, <laughs> and um, yeah, so I was stoked to get it. And I was like, yeah, I got enough material. You know, it's not a thing. And, you know, I think that could be part of it too. That's just an earlier model. I feel like once they started ramping up their production, it seemed like there's, there happened to be like more problems happening with people's freeze dryers. Yeah, I could see that as you scale up, maybe, you know, the quality control isn't quite the same as it was at one point or something. So maybe it does. Right. But yeah, I'm glad to hear no problems so far. Yeah, totally. Well, cool. You down for another smoke break? Yeah, yeah, totally. All right, let's do it. Shout out to our sponsors, one of the true legacy glass brands, Toro Glass, who you can visit at toroglassgallery.com or on Instagram at Toro underscore glass, where they've continued innovating functional glass art for over the last 20 years through the vision and creativity of artist JP Toro. JP has been exploring his passion for cannabis, glass, and function over the last two decades to be at a point where his designs are now taking dabbing to a whole new level for all of us. He's introduced us to the concept of the slurper through his desire and curiosity to explore a different airflow concept for quartz. He comes up with things that look awesome that are equally as awesome in function, like his jet cyclers, which come in a range of styles to exploring 
to exploring exciting colorways on a variety of their rigs and pipes, including a recent favorite of mine, the Crayon Yellow Jet Perk. So whether you're looking for quartz or high-end glass art that focuses on high-end function and design, visit Toro, who stays at the forefront of innovation at toroglassgallery.com or on their Instagram at toro underscore glass. I appreciate you listening. Now back to the episode. So touching upon the apprenticeship that you did during those four or five years, you told me something that kind of stuck out to me and was interesting is that A, you were allotted about 12 plants yourself, and that was a way to compensate you for your work. So really it was up to you to as to what happened with that. And that B, uh, the person who was your mentor used to kind of give you a little flack about why you grew so many varieties or so many strains within those 12 plants. And that over time, that actually became a strong suit for you when focusing on hash. So tell me a little bit about why you think his philosophy was coming from a different perspective and how it served you to be interested in seeing a variety of expressions of genetics. Yeah, totally. So that was a really, really cool time. You know, I feel like apprenticeships like that don't really happen as much anymore. And that's another reason I'm so happy to have been where I was at the time, because now it seems like there's just not really that, that, that leeway to be able to do stuff like that as much, you know, like, you know, it's kind of harder. Everybody kind of like needs to get paid on the sometimes basis. But at that time, it was kind of like outdoor was enough to to be able to make like, you know, a good living for the year. And uh, so that was how it would work. Yeah, I would get like 12 plants, you know, 200 gallon pots or like a little light up. And, uh, you know, that would be my exchange for for growing for the whole season, you know, start to finish the whole process. And um, and it worked really well. You know, I really enjoyed it for sure. Yeah, it was mainly like mostly OG you know, Fire OG, SFVOG, Girl Scout cookies, you know, a couple other varieties that, you know, we would hunt or try to find something new every once in a while. But those were the main ones. Yeah. And it was definitely a lot easier to move stuff when you just had like a couple strains like that. You could move larger quantities instead of having like people have to check like every single one. And so like, my thing is just I've always just loved the different expressions of the plant. And it's just like blown me away how each strain will be completely different. And then just the like the infinite, infinite differences within like a seed, a seed pop, you know, and just all the different chirps that you could, you know, potentially find or, you know, potentially not find. Sometimes it wouldn't go how I planned. You know, you get you get a plant from seed that you grew all giant and it's just not that good, you know? So it was kind of a gamble was part of the reason I feel like, you know, which I can totally understand why he's like, come on, man, why are you, why are you doing so many different strains? You got 12 plants and and eight different strains, you know? And, but, you know, I would always move stuff fine. You know, everything would always move because like, I feel like, um, the standard that he had set, you know, and, and instilled in me was, was quality. It would always work out, but yeah, it was definitely harder to move it. I've just always been like that. That's just always me. You know, I've always liked doing different strains and it's, you know, actually super benefited me now going into hash because, you know, everybody really wants a different flavor. Like if you grow a whole, you know, garden of one strain, it's going to be hard to like keep getting that out because, 
you know, people want different, different stuff to smoke, you know? So it's worked out great, you know, and it's given me a really good basis on a lot of these strains at the time, you know, as there's so much, so much more breeding now, there's a lot then, but now there's even more. So it gave me a nice basis on, on different types of strains and different, just different between like sativa and indicas and hybrids and everything, everything in between. So were you growing the majority of those 12 plants from seed or were you doing a little mix of clone? And then also was the farm doing mostly clone and not seed? Yeah, so I would probably do like 75% from seed and then like 25% from clone varieties that I just knew I really liked to grow as well. First year, like I did all clones and, you know, I did one seed plant that year actually and it and it got planted late and it just got huge. And I was like, all right, I'm gonna take the gamble the next couple of years and try different stuff, see what it does, you know, to try to find something different and unique. But yeah, yeah, on the farm it was mostly mostly OG for the most part, SFV and fire. But yeah, props props to that mentor too. He really, you know, did a lot for me and stuff. I won't go into it too much because I'm sure he probably would want a little privacy as far as it. But that's, that's just kind of the area that I was coming from too. Like it was very frowned upon to like even take pictures or like nonetheless to be posting pictures on Instagram, you know? So, but you know, stuff has just changed and, uh, you know, I'm glad that, you know, a community based on Instagram because you can just make so many connections and meet so many people that you normally wouldn't have had the chance to. Some of my best buddies, you know, are just met them on Instagram. Like, you know, just, I feel like you can kind of re- reflect with people and like, recognize other people that like share the same vision or just, you know, morals and standards as you. And it's just cool to like connect like that. Yeah. You were saying that to me last time and I kind of was reflecting on that because a lot of times nowadays I feel like we focus like on the negative part of, for example, Instagram or social media. And so that is definitely a a positive where it does bring people together in ways that maybe you wouldn't have otherwise. Totally. Yeah, definitely. Some good people. From that experience, you had started an Instagram. And so you started to see a little bit of like what you felt was the value in in doing so. Tell us a little bit about what you were seeing on Instagram in, in that time and how you were like finding a way to create your own voice within it, let's say. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to, you know, get in, get into it. I started seeing like Sticky Fields posting like all his garden pics and these huge plants and just like, just how, you know, he's developing this brand. And I just thought, you know, everything was starting to head towards like legalization and stuff. And so I was thinking like, this is a good time to like get on here and, and kind of like get something started. But yeah, we eventually, you know, just went different ways, you know, after legalization. And uh, I just, you know, kind of still wanted to do stuff like black market, I guess, you know, and we just, we just went in different directions, but, uh, it, you know, it worked out perfect and, you know, he's thriving and successful legal farm now still crushing. And, uh, you know, I'm doing my thing in the half scene. So, you know, both ways work a lot of love and respect for that guy. You know, he really, uh, taught me a lot. So it's been awesome for sure. Yeah. After we had parted ways, I just kind of like hopped into doing the hash online, just taking photos of my process and what I was doing and different things. It was just kind of cool. You know, I ended up meeting connections through just doing random games on there, you know, and 
one of the dudes who won one of the games, you know, happened to be someone who was just moving a lot of hash down the Bay Area and it just worked out. I feel like since then I've, you know, I've been pretty steady on Instagram and I've been getting deleted a lot lately, but that's okay. They always give it back usually. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a problem within this little microcosm is just like the, the accounts and their volatility, let's call it. But yeah, I, I do find it interesting how obviously there is a generational gap between, you know, people that weren't cool with the picture things, which was up until really not that long ago, uh, people that had been doing it maybe for a long time and were on a, in a very different mindset. And then you yourself came from that same world because you kind of grew up towards like your teenage years and stuff in there. But you also were maybe from a different mindset and kind of like going for it more and seeing this as being an avenue of actually growth and, and possibilities. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm glad with, you know, where I went with it. And it's pretty awesome, you know, it's pretty awesome to see. And it's just helped me grow the grow the brand and continue to keep doing it. So that's been really great. Yeah, you know, just on like a completely different note, like, because my mentor, you know, he was African American, too. And, uh, you know, I just want to say like, you know, big up to any like African American hash makers want to get in the scene, you know, because it's not like the easiest to get into and and there's not like a huge crazy amount of diversity so i just want to like send encouragement out to like any other african american hash makers cuz uh you know every everyone that i've tried hash from it's always been like super incredible and it's just a really uh cool thing that you know anybody can get into we just come from a long history of it you know being persecuted heavily for the plant you know like a lot of, of most people you know but um it's, you know, you, you do get targeted a little bit more. And so like, just in just in everyday life, as far as smoking and like, you know, having hash and shit. So, you know, I just want to say like more encouragement and confidence to anybody who wants to get into it, because we definitely need more people, more people of color, women. Yeah, I agree, dude. I think that that's a cool point to bring up and a, and a powerful one. And, you know, myself, I guess, as a person of color myself, I, I don't see like a ton of diversity in the scene uh, of people like producing, for example. Like you said, there are some people and some outliers and I, I see more and more women becoming part of the scene as well. But yeah, everybody can be part of it. And so it's cool to see the diversity and I appreciate your encouragement of people, anybody of any color of any race that wants to get into ASH. Yeah, totally. And you can always just start out small, you know, keep stuff simple. And just, I feel like the main thing is just wanting to do good at it and then trying to carry that momentum all the way through. Just try your best to do everything that you can to produce the best, you know, and, and it'll happen. You don't have to have like a crazy amount of equipment or a crazy, you know, amount of space. You just need the uh, passion. Yeah, that's right. I think passion goes a long way in whatever you do. And then the refinement of the craft is something that can be taken gradual. Like you're saying, it doesn't have to be full on. I mean, if you want to do full on, then I guess you can too. But. Totally, totally. So you keep saying that you learned a lot from your mentor. But one of the things that I found funny was something that you almost learned and brought to him, which then I think helped everybody out was the fact that you've been 
volunteering at Reggae on the River, which is a festival that happens up there in NorCal for many years. And from that experience, uh, over the years, you learned that, you know, doing depths is had a certain value to it. And you were able to bring that knowledge back to him and together you were able to make that work for everyone. So tell us a little bit about that experience. Yeah, so we've been, uh, my whole family, my brother and my mom and I, we've all been volunteering for Reggae on the River for the last like 14 years. Or so. It's always just been such an amazing time. It's up there in Benbow, you know, and put on by the Mateel Center. Shout out the Mateel Community Center. They bring a lot of good shows to Southern Humboldt and concerts and, and festivals as well. They also do summer arts and music fest. But um, it's a great place to meet, you know, really cool growers and really cool people like just in the industry and everybody's just kind of like cutting loose and chilling just for doing that for so long. We met a lot of like really, you know, good friends that I call family that live up there now and going up there, you know, and like checking out their grows and stuff and like being able to help big leafing or trimming or whatever was really cool because yeah, we, we, we saw that most people up there, you know, were doing a lot of people were doing depths because it was beating, beating the outdoor price, you know, and, People were being able to finish like two crops before outdoor even hit. So that was just really, really cool to see. And when I started seeing that, I had already been working at his farm and I was like, you know, we were just doing 220 lighters and like a big, big crop outdoor. But I was letting him know, like, you know, depth is the next thing that's about to start hitting. And that, and he fully believed in that 100%. You know, got a forever flowering greenhouse that we all helped build up there. And, you know, it's just crushing out fire. and. Uh, really good quality herb. So yeah, it was a great time. Yeah. One thing you mentioned to me that I was like, oh yeah, is you said a lot of times people were thinking that it was indoor based on the quality and the looks. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. It was definitely a thing um, at that time because it was pretty close. You know, I feel like the only distinguishing factor as much was basically like the size of the stem. Sometimes it can be a little bit you know, bigger than, than what indoors would look like. But yeah, a lot of people, you know, were just thinking it was indoor, you know? <laughs> so from, you know, your apprenticeship, you said you, you did indoor, like we're talking about now, you guys did DEP eventually. You obviously did full term. You said that your preference from seeing the trash bags, the resin, the experience on that farm, that you wanted to do outdoor. Why? Yeah, I just felt like the uh, the terpenes were just so high in quality. It's like a lot easier to produce. You know, it's a lot more cost effective to produce. And the high in the terpenes are just like on par, you know, with indoor. So it's just, it just seemed like, yeah, this is, this is obviously the way to go. If I'm in, you know, this area that I can grow really well, you know, why not? Yeah, so since then I've been you know, doing like some hoop houses every year. I did, a, you know, I've had a couple greenhouses, like bigger greenhouses going the last couple, two or three years. And uh, those ones got red tagged last year. So I'm not doing them this year. But yeah, I just feel like the expression of the hash just came out so fire from the outdoor and depths that is just really surprising. And, you know, I just like consuming stuff grown under the sun and just grown with those intentions. And there's something, you know, the sun has some type of power on the, on the herb plants, you know, they can, they can take crazy amounts of temperature outside, you know, it's been like 
107 the last two weeks. You know, the plants are doing doing great. There's just something about the sun and then the, you know, cycles of the moon and stars, you know, it's just, and then within that, there's so many microclimates that contribute to different flavors and hash, you know, from, you know, everywhere that's super high elevation, you know, super wooded properties, properties on, that are more coastal and just even one time to the next year, is it'll be different microclimates. So it's just cool to see how the hash expresses itself in those. Yeah, I got, you know, two spots going this year. One's up on the hill, you know, it's probably about 3,200 feet elevation. And where I'm at right now, is probably about a thousand something or so. So um, it's going to be really interesting to see the differences in the resin this year with that too. And yeah, I'm just really looking forward to it. Will you be running some of the same cultivars in both places? Yeah, so the the main one that I'm running at both is the pancakes. But then I made sure I did a lot of I'm doing a lot of different phenos up there from seed as well and stuff that I hunted in the first light depth this season. So I made sure to keep one plant from every different seed pop down here at my lower spot so that I can compare them. And it won't, you know, those ones won't be the same cuz they're different phenos, but the pancakes should be a good standard and seeing how it expresses itself a lot of times. So I think I'll be able to really get a good gauge from that with them both being from Cologne. And you were telling me, and you alluded to it recently in our conversation that, you know, sometimes it gets really hot. And I'm assuming that's the lower elevation property. And you and I talked about this privately about how that's like an ideal type of environment, for example, in the veg phase versus necessarily in the flower phase and the higher elevation ones can give you an opposite effect where the you know temperature even snow you brought up would uh, you know prevent you from being able to plant earlier and getting that vigorous beginning but it finishes off probably a little easier so how do you balance those things or how do you make them work within non-ideal environments yeah, it's just the pros and cons of the two, but I feel like just having experience in in both areas, you can kind of start to anticipate certain things like on the lower spot where it gets a lot hotter. I don't typically plant like summer summer depths. I'm sure if I did more of them down here at this elevation that I could dial it in to the point that I wanted. As far as this spot, I like to just do the spring depths and then replant with full terms from there. Um, because the sun can get very like dry and very harsh in this time in midsummer, but yeah, in the higher spot, it keep, it gets a little bit cooler, you know, and stays a little bit cooler in these summer days. It's not necessarily like have as much ability to start the depths earlier, just because yeah, it will have so much snow up there. But yeah, it, it's all you know, it all kind of like goes within itself and with within the microclimates. You just kind of figure out how to work with it, stick to your formula. Interestingly enough, though, you told me, for example, the plants themselves end up being approximately the same sizes in the end. Yeah, I feel like it doesn't contribute as much to the size of the plant, but I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the differences in the resin for sure. But yeah, I've grown super large plants up there on the hill. Like I'd say the biggest ones are probably like eight pounds. And then I've uh, got about eight pounds down at this smaller one as well. So 
it's not too much having to deal with the size of the plant. I feel like the plant just regulates to the temperatures, you know, and sometimes you have to water a little bit more, sometimes a little less. But yeah, if you figure it out, they'll all kind of have the ability to grow at the at the same rate, you know, good so, soil, good water. So it's almost as if, for example, some of the things that being, are being more affected by these different environments or terroirs is like the terpenes expressions and maybe like the meltiness, for example, of the resin versus necessarily the expression of the physical plant itself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the main difference is going to be in the hash and the end smoke. Probably be able to tell a little bit of difference in the flower, but not too much, really. You know, I feel like I'm most looking forward to seeing the differences in the hash. Yeah, I think it should be a nice little experiment for sure. The the other spot I've been doing the last couple of years is on the same elevation as me, so it was pretty pretty standardized. Yeah, it it should be cool. It's going to be a nice nice season. Another thing that you said that was notable was in your higher elevation property it being a little more removed, uh, for example, from city life or other farms or I think wineries is where you were pointing with the, the spraying. There's a lot less pressure up there versus in the lower property that is closer to some of these wineries. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a big difference. Down here on the lower spot, there's pretty much vineyards, and you know, all surrounding the area. And this, you know, will spray pretty heavily. There's, there's not many of them that, that don't spray. And so, uh, I feel like just at certain times through the summer, you'll see like, uh, like an influx of pest pressure. You know, especially when it gets coupled with the heat. But yeah, you know, I, I try to keep those bugs down as much as possible with, you know, beneficial insects and, you know, companion planting with a lot of flowers around the, around the gardens. And then also, you know, I'll spray and veg usually, usually with like a pretty good amount of neem throughout veg. And then um, sometimes like in between, like before I start doing neem, I'll hit them with some sulfur just to, just to be uh, cautious of like russet mites and stuff like that. But yeah, the higher spot, like it's just, it's just up in the cuts. There's nobody really around, you know, it's a large property. There's, there's no traffic anywhere. There's there's no vineyards. There's no big farms out there really either. I planted up there like on July 1st. It was a little bit later of a planting for me this year, but um, I haven't had the spray once, you know, and it's been over a month. I haven't seen any types of bugs or anything. I've just been getting beneficial insects and releasing them up there. But, you know, the plants are crazy clean, you know, and that's that's been really nice. What are some of the beneficial plants that you have around the garden? So I actually like just buy these permaculture packs and they'll just be loaded with all different types of flowers and stuff. And a lot of the times it'll come random. So like I won't know like 100% of the things in there, but we planted like a lot of borage and a lot of uh, marigolds. We do like a large amount of sunflowers too. I feel like it's just a perfect spot that birds can like be attracted and perch down and like take out any caterpillars or anything like that. But yeah, there's just, just a lot of, a lot of different types of flowers, you know, cosmos. And it's just nice to have that diversity in the grow area. I feel like insects really like it, especially like uh, ladybugs and 
praying mantis. Like this year, I've just seen like a crazy amount of praying mantis eggs on the inside of most of my tea posts. And so that was cool to see and just see like all the baby praying mantis all over the garden. Pretty awesome. Yeah, that sounds cool. So regarding your cultivation practices, where do you feel you are now versus, for example, a few years ago? Has much changed? And you said earlier that you like to keep things simple. Would you say that that's the way to describe your gardening approach? Yeah, yeah. I try to keep everything very simple. You know, I've experimented over the last year doing uh, living soil beds and hugels and stuff like that. I've just loved the quality. You know, it comes out super dank, like really, really good. That's probably the main differences that I've made in the last couple of years. But other than that, I try to just, you know, fully amend the soils before planting. That way I don't have to like feed very much. And then I'll just do like some teas every once in a while and some fish emulsions and cow mags. And, you know, I try to make some of my own ferments also with any of the plants that I have to like, that I have to chop for some reason, or like if any male plants, I'll make some ferments out of those. And I also have like a super nice apple tree at this property and it's just overabundant in apples. So I always make a, uh, an apple ferment at the end of the year to use for flour. In, in regards to your potting mediums or your, the size of your pots, if you're using them, I know you said you had experience growing from like 100 to 300 gallon size pots. So do you have a, a preference or is it just dependent on what's available and the particular place? Yeah, yeah. I feel like it mostly comes down to preference. Yeah, I've done 100, 200, 300, 400s. And, you know, I found that a lot of the times you can get close to the same amount in 300s and 400s. Unless you uh, start like super, super early with nice seed starts, you know, or put out like really nice, strong, healthy clones and put like a, some type of plastic to pre- protect them in the early season. I feel like my preference mainly goes from 200 to 300. I feel like 400s can be like a little bit, a little bit over sometimes. It's just like a lot of, a lot of watering to do. And like I said, you can kind of get close to the same amount in 300s. 100s are also really nice to grow in if you're doing like a bunch of like smaller plants because there tends to be like a lower smalls ratio and like lower, a lower amount of just inside stuff that you have to clean out. And so I really like hundreds for that as well, you know, and especially like if growing for flour, I feel like you can get some really nice chunky nugs all the way down in hundred gallons and won't have like that larf on the inside, which um, unless you just prune super hard with 200s, 300s, 400s, um, you're going to have like a good amount of, of larf on the inside that I guess for hash, it, it, it doesn't matter a huge amount as much, but there are like a lot of underdeveloped heads on those ones. So, you know, putting that in might, might dilute the quality of your hash compared to just all really nice nugs. But, it, you know, it also might give it a little bit more of like a full, full effect as, as far as having like more mature trichomes to write on mature trichomes to like some that are completely under. But yeah, my preference is 200, 300s. And at this point, my preference is mostly raised beds. Currently, how many genetics are in the garden? So I'm still kind of on my thing of doing like a crazy amount of strains per garden. Like the one that I'm at right now is like 20 different plants. And there's like 
20 different strains in this one <laughs> because I just feel like, you know, just I like to see the different expressions. I like to have people be able to experience that at the garden up on the hill is a little bit less. There's like, there's like 30, 300 gallons up there and probably about 10 different strains. So that one, uh, that one, I just didn't have as, as many different ones to plant, but I might've done more different ones if, if I had, if I had them, I just kind of like to use all my own starts and stuff because I feel like sometimes you, you never know, like bugs can sneak in from, from other people's nurseries or whatever. So I just try to start like with stuff I know is very clean. So what are some of the ones that you're most excited about that you're unfamiliar with? Some of the ones I'm most excited about from clone would be like, I haven't grown the grease bucket 11, so I'm excited about that from Symbiotic Genetics. And I think it's the pure milk cut. I haven't grown Trop Cherry, so I'm doing that this year. White Fire OG, trying to bring back some like OG and gassiness. And I'm really excited about some nice Starburst 36 clones I got from the buddy. Two different phenos that he selected, Urban Turf Farmer. So those genetics are really, really looking forward to those. I've also got the Skunk Tech Sour that I'm excited about because I've grown a ton of AJ Sour last year. And I really like that one. So I just wanted to see a different expression of some sour. From seed, there's a lot more genetics too. There's some that I hunted in the spring depth this light year of or I mean this, the light depth of this year, but one of my favorites in there so far is the light speed and the petrochem from archive seeds. And that's a uh, light speed is lemon peel, docido to moonbow. And then the petrochem is gorilla glue to moonbow. So I'm really excited to see those because I kind of had a chance to select my favorite ones out of there. It's a smaller light depth vino hunt. So I had to do a mixed wash within each strain. So I didn't necessarily get to see how each pheno expressed itself differently, aside from just doing a test wash in the jar and and getting the the nose terps off those and the and seeing the yield of trichomes. So that's gonna be cool for me to kind of go through those more on a full term and be able to wash each pheno individually. There's also some really nice blueberry tarts plants, Skittles to Blue Power, and some really nice pancakes to mandarin tart that was bred by sticky fields and the blueberry tarts is from sin city seeds and then there's just there's a couple other ones that are really nice up there some really nice satsuma cream sickle from that my brother bred kinjana organics and that's a cross of the satsuma sherb from pure melt and a cookies and cake male that he's been breeding for a couple years which is a cookies and cream to wedding cake and he's been breeding that for, I think, three or four years now and found a really nice male and hit the Satsuma Sherb. And I found some nice phenos of that in the spring light up. So I'm just excited to, I'm excited to, to see that. And I just found like, because of him breeding in my general area, out of the whole pheno hunt, like his stuff seemed to just grow a little bit easier and like not really have any problems, you know, there's maybe one seed out of, you know, a couple of strains that were, that were the feminized ones that had little bananas or herm sacs, you know, and, and then also just like, you know, you'll sometimes get like mold on some phenos, just having not grown them in your area. But the ones that my brother bred right in this area were just hundred percent, no problem. So probably gonna run more of his gear this coming year. 
do you think that is like a thing, for example, where because they're being, for example, worked and bred in this area, it's like an easier translation where, I mean, it's kind of basically work in that area because of that? Yeah, I do feel like that's that's always been a, a good thing. Like even from early on popping seeds, I was always encouraged to like get seeds from the climates and areas that I'm in, you know, specifically Lake County, but also Mendocino. Humboldt's a definitely a different a different climate up there. So I guess I don't run as much from Humboldt, but I feel like I always like to pop different stuff. So I'm always going to like experiment with stuff from different microclimates. But I do feel like if you're growing just for those plants, you know, and not necessarily wanting to look for something totally different, it's always a good idea to pop seeds that were bred in your area. Or if you're growing indoor, you know, to breed or to grow seeds that were bred indoors, you know, vice versa as well. And I've had a lot of really good success with with people in this area. So another breeder that I grew a lot of was uh, Heart Rock Mountain Farm. And I grew some of his Doc OG to Tangy and Skittles to Jack. And and those ones were just, you know, no problems, giant plants, like super, super well, well acclimated to my area. So I feel like it's a good idea. So since you have an inclination for wanting to see a range of expressions and like you get a kick out of having all these different phenos, whether it's from clone or from seed. How does something make it into your stable that's not going anywhere? For example, like the pancakes. You were like, we got a bunch of pancakes up. So what makes a strain be able to stick when you like to see variety all the time? Yeah, I feel like it it definitely takes a lot for me to get to that point. Like if it's, if it's not super, super amazing and passing every single test and like exceeding everybody's expectations, then I have a hard time keeping it around because I'd rather just keep looking for something new. But I feel like if it's hitting on every level, the terps, you know, the potency, the effects, how it grows, you know, if it's hitting all these boxes, I'll definitely try to keep it around. And the pancake's been doing that for me. So it's perfect. I grew like the green sunset sherbet for a long time too. It was like a sunset sherbet that got released before Cookie Fam really started putting it out. Like someone had got a tray of cookies and heard it was, you know, you know, had a, a stray clone in there that was something different and they just assumed that it was sunset sherb. I don't think that's necessarily what it was. I used to see like Cookie Fam and people getting mad at him back in the day, but it's this green green cut of sunset sherb and it's just fire i like that one a lot and uh i grew that one for like four years and if i could find it again i definitely i definitely grow that one again but yeah it's it's pretty tricky you know i don't i don't i got like a very high standard i guess for keeping stuff around is the sunset sherb the one that you told me you took to emerald cup one time and you started getting like feeling like yeah this is a good one based on on a few people's feedback yeah, yeah, that one that one was great. Yeah, that was a good year at Emerald Cup. That was like pretty much the year that I was deciding about do, going full on about Kinjana extracts. Like I had already been using my buddy's press once in a while and press some really nice hash and produce some good rosin. And so I was kind of in that phase of, oh, I want to pull a trigger on a press, but I want to test them out first. And uh, Sasquatch Rosin Press, of course, was doing their demo at Emerald Cup that year. and 
you could bring up however much hash and they'd press it right on the spot for you. So I had grown the Sunset Sure that year, the green cut, and, and made some really nice bubble from it, air dried. And I brought, you know, probably like two ounces or so up there. <laughs> I think they're a little bit surprised when I rolled up with that much, you know, and just, and just seeing like, you know, that it was a good quality one. I feel like maybe, I don't know if a lot of people were bringing stuff that was a little bit under par or something, but I feel like they're surprised, but they're like, they squished the whole thing for me. And it was, it was awesome. I was, they're really impressed. And there's people like coming up, you know, the green sunset shirt was kind of big at the time. And then this one dude ran up and was like, is that this, that is that the sunset shirt? Like, it's, I could smell it all the way in the pavilion over there. And, you know, and I was like, yep, that's it. And just seeing people's reaction, you know, I was like, all right, I'm going to get, I'm going to jump in this hash, in the hash game of the rosin. Yeah, I met Soil Grown Solventless Phil super briefly there, you know, just basically got to show him what the hash looked like. And, you know, he was like, oh, smells good or something. And so that was a big one. And uh, it was just cool getting feedback like that. Burner was there. and. I, you know, I was, just went up to him with a big old slab of rosin and, <laughs> and he was like, that smells good, you know? And, and so, yeah, it was just a really fun Emerald cup, you know? And I went home the next day and, and ordered a press and started the Kinjana extracts Instagram. Yeah. That's pretty funny, man. How many of these strains do you have then in your stable? Is it literally only the pancakes that you're keeping? Yeah. Right now it's just the pancakes. That's the only one. Yeah, I just like growing new stuff every year, you know, like so the blueberry tarts I grew last year too and and that one was just on point. It was really good. I didn't keep any cuts from the phenos and so I was kind of disappointed about that. So I just decided to pop another pack this year and definitely going to try to keep cuts from that. Hopefully it's something that's that's super fire because a lot of people liked it. I really enjoyed it. So that one is is one that I grew last year and this year, but both from different seed packs. And on the cuts, for example, like the White Fire OG, I don't remember the number you said, but that, do you know if it washes or is it something that you just think it could be a cool flavor and so you go and you get the clone of it? How does that work? How do you decide that? I feel like that's just one of those nostalgic flavors that I don't see as much anymore, like some really dank OG just from growing the fire for so long, I've kind of missed it a little bit. You know, it was one of my all-time favorites to smoke in flower form for sure. And the White Fire OG was the closest one I could find to that. So I know it's a little bit different, but I'm looking forward to seeing some some gassy chirp profiles from that. The first year after like, you know, I started the hash brand and like been doing that for a little while, growing at my brother's property. And then, uh, my girlfriend and I were able to like get this really nice, nice house that I'm at now. So that year I just did like 40, I did like 40 or 50, I did 50 full terms, but there was like a wildfire that came by and it, it took out like five of them. So that sucked, but everything was still like in veg. It was early in the year. So there wasn't any like ash damage or anything like that. So that was cool. But that year I did like a huge row of fire OG and, I did it all into hash rosin and, you know, it, it didn't produce like crazy, but it didn't produce bad at all. You know, I didn't note the percentage, but if I had to guess, I'd probably say like a three percenter. You know, I've been reminiscing about that fire OG since then. So I tried to get something close to it. 
And that brings up an interesting point to me that I was going to ask you earlier that I forgot was when you were talking about the different things to keep it like in your stable is yield one of them. And then the other part to that is because you are an outdoor cultivator and these are really big plants, does that change your perspective on yield? Because for example, they produce more in biomass and maybe yield becomes less of a concern or is it still something that heavily factors in? Yeah, I feel like just the lower cost production of the outdoor allows me to like experiment more. And yield has never really been a huge thing for me. Like, of course, if something's like a one percenter or like somewhere down there, like I don't really, I'm not really going to want to grow it unless it's like super amazing, something that is just superior to everything. I usually aim for like 2% or better. And I feel like that's pretty, pretty low. So, but yeah, I don't, I don't have as much of a restraint on which strains because it is outdoors. So I can kind of just kind of like dance around with different strains and not really care about the yield as much because it's not like a make or break thing for me um, unless it's just a really bad yielder. I find that most stuff doesn't do too terrible though. I've only had like maybe 5% of, of strains that I've run be really bad and, and me like, I'm not going to run that ever again. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's, it seems, you know, I seem to be able to do kind of whatever strains I want to as far as the outdoor goes, and it comes out pretty well. Yeah, that's cool. It gives you, like I said, room to experiment, and if that's your natural inclination, then that's pretty cool. And then I'm curious, always when people refer to percentages, you mentioned earlier taking out the 45, what does the percentage to you actually mean? Is it a particular range? Is it a particular wash? Is it all of it together? The raw hash? I usually go like 45 to 160, but I'll also factor in like just the range that I was able to put into jars also, because, you know, those are going to be totally different. There's the range that's all the hash and, you know, that's always going to be the higher percent. And then there's the range of just the stuff you put into jars. So. I feel like when I'm talking about percentages, I try to go for the full range. But if somebody's wondering like another hash maker, I guess I would go into like the the 70 to 120 range. Sometimes 150, but not not most of the time. Okay, cool. Yeah, that makes sense. So you down to take another smoke break? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. All right, cool. Let's do it. Shout out to our homies and partners, Rosin Evolution, the best bags in the game, who you can visit at rosinevolution.com or on Instagram at rosinevolution100, where you'll find everything you need to make rosin, whether that's the best deal in hash in their affordable and reliable full mesh wash bags, or in Rosin Evolution's high-grade rosin bags, which are trusted by makers all over the nation, from small batch to commercial. They've got you covered with their amazing customer service that gets you what you need, when you need it. So if you press rosin or you wash hash, grab everything you need at rosinevolution.com. And to save an additional 5% while supporting the podcast, use our savings code, the letters THI, the number 710. Again, THI710 altogether saves you 5% at rosinevolution.com. I appreciate you listening. Now back to the episode. Tell us where the name Kenjana comes from, because it's 
not been a question that I've asked, I think, anybody in a while, like their brand name, but it is a unique name. And I'm curious where it came from and possibly what it means to you. Yeah, Kinjana is just, it's basically like my family name. Uh, me and my brother both have the name. And um, it's just, it, it's in Swahili and it means warrior. And so I just thought it was going to be like the best representation of of the brand. And especially going into this era of just there being so much of a, you know, divide between the white market and, and the black market. And just a time when, you know, stuff's just pretty crazy. You just got to be a warrior in this time. And so I wanted to put out some warrior medicine. You know, I always try to put some energy about that onto the hash. Like, you know, don't give up in anything that you're trying to do in life and, you know, have confidence and a vision and make a plan. Be a warrior to de- defend what's, you know, fight down Babylon. Yeah, that's cool. And the imagery a lot of times is associated to lions. Is that in the same vein? Yeah, yeah. I feel like part of that's, you know, I'm a Leo, so I feel like that was part of it. <laughs> But yeah, I've just always loved the lion and the image of that and the lion of Judah. And and so I feel like that was how I wanted to represent the brand. Cool. Yeah, I like it. And like I said, it's very unique. So I think that that's always a good thing, obviously, just to have something that you know sticks out. Before we took the smoke break, you were talking about how from the apprenticeship you kind of kicked off Kenjana and you and I spoke privately about how part of that came from, like you said earlier, both of you going your own ways and having success in in both ways, but also it came from wanting to move more into, for example, hash and then into rosin. Can you tell us what were some of the motivations of you wanting to go more in that direction to where now you know, your entire crop is fresh frozen. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, I just recognized the power of the medicine and how it was helping, you know, me among all the people around me. uh, Around the time I lost my house in that fire, I also lost my mom to cancer. And so that was just pretty hard for me. And, you know, pretty much started dabbing right after that to kind of cope with that. It just really helped me like an amazing amount. It just showed me that this is the direction of medicine that I want to go in to help people just a step further from the flower. And yeah, it's been, you know, it's really helped me like a lot of the years. And, you know, I eventually just realized that you can't like run from painful stuff like that. You kind of have to just go towards it and just, uh, you know, accept that everything is meant to be how it's going to be. But I feel like through that and just having my son, has just kind of like given me so much joy that it's kind of just healed me, you know, a lot, those two things, but the dabs have been great medicine to be able to deal with that (laughs) before I, you know, kind of figure stuff out. Yeah. And another thing you brought up, I think earlier was the idea of being able to see the effect in people, whether they're friends or not almost immediately, for example, providing them dabs versus you know, maybe smoking bowls or smoking a joint or something. Yeah, definitely. Definitely a huge medicine for so many people. And yeah, just just lots of people, you know, everybody have different 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 stuff going on with their bodies or in their life, you know, and and the the hash rosin really just 
gave everybody so much relief and it was just like a breath of fresh air to see. So I was like, yeah, I got to start pumping this stuff out. What was it about rosin that spoke to you versus, for example, the hash? I'm not saying that you don't put out full melt, but if you're mostly putting out rosin, what is it that attracted to you about that? I would say it was just the the hash rosin and hash in general kind of just attracted me away from from like any type of BHO or anything like that. Like that was what I first started dabbing on. As soon as I realized that all this bubble I was making that I could press it, it was just like a game changer because I was already making good hash at the time, but I didn't know how to make rosin. And when that information kind of like surfaced, you know, it was just, I was like, this is the way, you know, it's so much, so feels so much more healthy and just so much nicer of an experience and so much more full bodied and I can make it myself, you know, (laughs) and without, you know, there's, a lot of people like blowing stuff up at the time. And I was like, not really one to want to take a risk to do any, any of that, you know, ice, water, heat and pressure. That was the way. And now it's still pumping. It's the main consumption of concentrates, you know, I feel like. Yeah. How do you see that progression? For example, having kind of been in the scene and still in it. And like you said, being a consumer of VHO yourself and, you know, something like rosin, at a certain time wasn't seen as being, you know, quite equivalent to BHO. And now it seems like rosin is like, like you're saying, one of the main ways that people consume concentrates, or at least they're aware of it. Yeah, I just feel like it it started out, you know, I was probably only like three, three months or so when I was really smoking BHO before I realized that, that about hash rosin and just it being the way people still do produce good BHO. But uh, I just choose not to smoke it. It's just not my, not my preference at all. But yeah, back then people were producing really good BHO and it was like sometimes 80, you know, 90, 100 bucks at the dispensary for some, for some good stuff. You know, quickly after trying stuff like that and then trying out bubble hash that I just pressed myself, I realized that, it, that I really wanted to just stick with the hash and the hash rosin. And I feel like just more and more people have realized that over the years. Yeah, I don't really know anybody who's who's blazing BHO right now. Do you think that also goes hand in hand with, for example, consumer education and becoming aware that there are these different options that are, for example, solvent-based? And again, not to necessarily say that them being solvent-based is like a negative thing, just saying that people are more aware now and have the choice to choose a solventless product if they choose. Yeah, I feel like people are very much more aware and it's just been um, kind of a nice bridge too between everybody who was smoking flour before and not entirely wanting to smoke BHO and just, you know, hearing about how it's made and stuff. And that's a lot of people are making it and not really doing a amazing job of purging it, you know, and... Um, so I feel like the hash rosin just made everything so much more approachable for for people like that that were not necessarily into dabs, feeling like they see you know this this flour just being processed with ice and water and heat and pressure is uh you know makes you feel like okay this is I'm gonna try this out and also people have been making you know hash in bubble hash and solventless form for so long like thousands of years it's been it's been going on and. There's just never been any negative effects, it seems like, over history 
we just, you know, BHO is just early still, you know, even though it's kind of on its way out right now. It's been around for a minute, but it hasn't been around for that long to where like people would know how it, how it's going to affect you, you know, 40 years down the road. Yeah, it's true. Like I've talked to various people about we're kind of all a little bit of guinea pigs, even with like the hash, you know, it's like fresh frozen has never really been a thing in history. And now all these terpenes are being conserved and we're all, you know, puffing on them. So who knows what will actually happen, but yeah, it's, it'll be interesting. Yeah, totally. So another thing I feel like is you were able to see the flower market going from being really strong. And by that, just to clarify, the dry flower market to gradually over time, it became less and less valuable. Was that also part of the reason that you decided to focus on the resin and processing it versus only doing the dried flower? Yeah, that was definitely part of it for sure. I could I could definitely see that the price was going down and you know, I kind of I put like a lot of love and a lot of passion and hard work into into my plants and so I just wanted them to be able to like support me to keep doing that, you know, because it you know, outdoor when I was getting into it, it was still around like 16, 17 for good stuff, you know, and uh it just gradually dropped, you know, 14, 12, 1000 and once it started getting like more requests for like below a thousand nine eight hundred and stuff, I just could kind of see that it was probably going to go down more, and that if I want to keep being able to sustain this life of just strictly growing cannabis, then I was going to have to do something different. And yeah, I just found hash to be that thing. I think I might have been able to like get some type of indoor operation and do some really nice small batch flour was the other thing I was thinking. But um, yeah, I kind of saw that the flower market was was getting harder and harder each year, even producing really good quality. Do you feel like at this point, for example, having a hash brand carries a certain inherent value to it? Yeah, I, I do feel like I do feel like that. And I'm glad that I started early because I've just been able to get a lot of experience and be able to like meet a lot of people. But yeah, I feel like it does have a, a lot of value to um, be having a brand for a while. Yeah, I probably could have done that with flour too. You know, I just, I just thought where I was at wanting to grow mostly outdoor, this is what I was going to do. And, and just being able to see all the people that it was helping and, and really appreciated it was a big thing. Realizing this is where I was going to go fully freezing each garden. Yeah. And I found it interesting, the point that you brought up earlier in a different context where you're like, yeah, you know, the pounds would go out and they would help people and serve people, but it wasn't something that was really visible to you. Whereas to with the hash brand, it's been something that you've been able to see actually how it's affecting people, I suppose, whether that's through social media or not. Right. But it's something that has brought a different connection to you to the patients or to the people consuming their product. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely big. Like, of course, just doing flower, like you can always see it among your friends and family and people they gift, you know, and, but yeah, for the majority of the most, most of the herb, you're not going to really see that end user at all um, because it gets shipped all over, you know, the world and, and broken down to, to so many different people. So, you know, 
there's always that faith in that it's going to help so many people. And I feel like I always try to like put that energy onto my herb and put that energy into the wash. But yeah, being able to see like directly all the people that were getting these jars and getting their feedback. And that was just, that was just really, really awesome. I always appreciate everyone's feedback. Anybody that has any feedback, like I always, I always really appreciate it. And uh, just hearing that it's helping people is, you know, is the highest honor of cultivating this plant. So I'm glad, I'm glad to see that, you know. What happens if you receive not so positive feedback? Does that also help you in a capacity? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I feel like, I don't know if it's, if it's cause I'm like really like just nice or something, but I don't get a ton of negative feedback. Actually. I feel like, I don't know if people, maybe some people do, but they kind of, I haven't really heard. I haven't really heard that much. I've had maybe one person complain about like about two jars is the same, you know, same person. And I really valued that feedback because, you know, she's a really loyal supporter and really, helps her a lot. And I have a lot, so much respect for this woman and, you know, she's awesome. And so I feel like, yeah, she did feel like she wanted to tell me that these two weren't quite up to par on the potency. And I totally understand that. And I'm not going to probably run those ones again, you know, but yeah, I haven't got a lot of huge negative feedback. Actually, when I first started, I put out one batch that was, you know, it was fully air dried strawberry banana it was the first time I feel like I'd experienced like a strain that dumps that much hash in one batch and I was just air drying it all. So I feel like I like expediated the drying process a little too much. What that did was leave a little slight moisture in some of the air dried hash. And that way when I pressed it and people were trying it, it like gave a little sizzle when it hit the banger because that moisture. And so pretty much the first like people that tried that, I got the feedback and pulled that whole batch, you know, came back with, with other stuff that was, was fully 100% dried. Yeah. Those, those have probably been the two, the two negative feedbacks I've gotten over the past six years or so. Yeah. I mean, that's cool to hear that you haven't got much. Um, also, like you said earlier, I'm assuming maybe some people feel uncomfortable reaching out with not good feedback, but when you do, if you make the best of it, like you said, maybe those are strains that you don't want to run anymore because you do value this person's opinion, then that's a cool lesson to learn from that as well, too. So, you know, there's something to learn from everything, I guess. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Any feedback is is good feedback, you know, and it's going to help you become better in whichever way that is. I really, you know, I really super value that when people give me their 100% honest feedback, because, yeah, a lot of the times when I hook, like, the homies up to test stuff out, it's hard to, like, you know, it's hard to <laughs> yeah. get that super honest feedback. I don't know if they're, you know, just want to say like, that's fire, that's fire, you know, to, to whatever, because they really appreciate it, you know. But when people are really harsh on their criticism, I feel like is my favorite, you know, because it helps me figure out how to be better. Tying this into what we were talking about earlier, which is like consumer education slowly growing amongst people and the general public and people becoming more knowledgeable about dabbing and cannabis oils and whatnot. Do you feel like the expectations of a consumer now have also increased with the product? I know you mentioned to me that, you know, when you were first doing it, it was like X amount of dollars per gram, 
which is considerably different than the X amount of dollars that you know nowadays uh, resin fetches. Do you feel like that kind of increase in price and in value in the resin has also created more of an expectation in people? Yeah, 100%. You know, uh, the hash market is more and more competitive every year because there's more and more people learning how to do it at a really high quality. And that's, you know, amazing. You know, that's that's the goal for sure. But yeah, it definitely has, like, if you want to compete on the market nowadays, you got to, like, be able to process stuff really nicely, have someone or yourself that can grow really well, and also have the connections to be able to get it out. So I feel like the quality of the market is just going to go up and up from here. And, um, you know, we've hit a little bit slower, I guess, in a time with as much innovation. Everything was very accelerated for those first couple of years as well, because everybody was learning so much things. And it's still going steady, but it has slowed down a little bit. But the quality that everybody's producing is just getting better and better. And it's awesome to see, you know. Speaking of jars, I think you answered this briefly earlier, but what typically goes into the jars that you're putting out? Uh, most of the time I'll do first, second wash, uh, 90 and 120. And I try to usually stick to those, you know, like I love the 70U, you know, it's always good. But I feel like sometimes it can leave a little bit more residue on the banger. You know, I know that's a little bit less of a broad spectrum for the effects for people, but I feel like the 90 and 120 is going to be the best quality. I usually try to just go to the second wash. Sometimes I'll do the third one if it comes out super clean and has like a lot of nice turps still, because a lot of times the third wash is still really on par. But generally, I just do first and second. I feel like those are going to be the best representations of the best resin heads. You know, sometimes stuff will, will, you know, can get better in the third wash, but I feel like, you know, 95% of the time, the first and second wash are going to be the best in 90 to 120. 150 also, like, I feel like in that range, I guess the actual spectrum would be like the, the 90 to 159 or 149, depending on which bag you're having above the 120. A couple of questions. One of them is, how long are your wash cycles typically? And then my second question is going back to using a three or four bag setup when you first started that you were handed down. Where are you at now with, with that? Yeah, so right now I just use the eight bag set, 20 gallons. I really like being able to pull every bag from the from the spectrum and, and take out whatever I want to take out. So I do that in a 20 gallon vessel. The 20 gallon set and then I drain from just a 32 gallon of a 32 gallon with a 220 rosin evolution mesh bag filling the whole thing and then I'll have a little drain spigot on the bottom and I'll have my wash vessel on top of a motorcycle lift and that way when I'm done mixing I can just pump it up in the air and switch the drain on and drain straight into the 20 gallon and then I just have like 240 gallon ice reservoirs full of RO, RO water with, with a bunch of ice in there to keep it nice and cold. So just to confirm, you're basically pulling each bag separately in every single wash, just so you have the options of keeping them together separate, doing what you feel is best. Yeah, yeah. Every, every wash, I'll pull every bag. 
I just like being able to see the differences in the qualities. Usually the third, fourth, sometimes I'll do fish squash um, of the 90, 120. Uh, we'll just be like head stashed or we'll go in with, sometimes I'll put it in pre-rolls, make some hash holes with the Zonuts crew or, you know, into gummies. But um, generally I'll do the, the 70, 160 and 45 into, into food grade gummies. But um, I like to pull every bag just to be able to see the quality of that resin and give me a better representation of how that plant washes because I do run through so many different strains and phenos. Yeah, and I feel like just to like another, you know, trick that I picked up. I'm not sure if I think it was off one of your podcasts, but it was about just when you're harvesting like for melt, like I've had a big change in quality on the melt when I started doing full boxes lined with parchment and harvesting my fresh frozen into those and then freezing that just in the boxes in the freezers and the next day putting it into the turkey bags. At first, I was just harvesting like straight fresh frozen into the turkey bags and leave them open in the freezer for a night and then tie them up. And that was working too. But from buying all these boxes that fit the right dimensions for the freezers, lining them with parchment and filling that with the material, there's like no condensation left on the turkey bags. And it just lets the nugs just stay in really nice, nice shape. Nothing's like sitting on top of each other. I feel like I did notice a little difference in the in the melt and hash uh, 9120 quality after doing that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I definitely have heard that like the more intact you can freeze essentially the trichomes, it's like they're less disturbed, maybe is the best way to put them. And so if that affects the yields or affects the quality or affects anything, that's pretty interesting. And for you to have noticed that uh, yourself in your own intuitive way is also a good like confirmation on that. Yeah. Big up to the podcast for all the information just that everybody spreads through these, you know, it's just, it's awesome. Yeah. Thanks, man. I, like I said, we were talking about it privately and you were like, Oh yeah, I, I I've listened to the podcast since, you know, it came out basically and you were obviously already making hash at that point, but you were like, it kind of like helped me level up my game, but not only that, but being able to like listen to other makers. So, you know, for me, it's all a, a really big trip and kind of cool that these little kind of full circle moments come around. So I'm I'm just as appreciative of you and anybody else who's who's listened and supported, to be honest. Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. Exponentially, like, upgraded as soon as I started listening to every interview and trying to soak up as much game as possible because a lot of times there's not, like, a ton of hash makers in your area. And even if there is, you don't necessarily, like, hang out and like share tips and techniques that much, you know? And uh, <laughs> so it's just, it's just really cool for that information to be out there, you know, and, and you can just study it, you know, and learn so much. Yeah. That's so cool, man. It's, it's so funny for you know me to have anything to do with this. So I'm thankful to be part of it as well. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm getting weird and awkward now, <laughs> <laughs> um, but Back to your wash cycles is how long are they? I don't know if you answered that. Maybe I missed it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, generally I'll go just until I start seeing like a good amount of hash production in the bags. It kind of varies on those first and second washes because some strains just let go of the trichomes super easily. And some of them, you know, will take a little bit longer to get everything suspended into the water. But so usually 
I, I open wash, so I kind of go by sight. And when I see that that water is super saturated with trichomes, then I always drain, you know. And um, even if that's as little as like three minutes or something like that. But the general range, I guess, would be like three to eight minutes on my washes. I usually don't go past that like seven, eight minutes, even if it's a harder trichome to get off. I just, you know, realize that you got to do a couple more washes. But yeah, I never go past that because I really don't want to overbeat those trichomes, especially on the first wash, because you want to be pulling for that melt and too much. If you, you know, wash too hard, it's going to end up having more contaminant in it. And then later on, later washes, I usually just do like five minutes. Generally in that like three to five wash, whenever I'm finishing, I I can kind of go by my nose on that where like you can kind of start smelling the greenness coming off the water as you're washing it. Or like it has this like cucumber, like planty smell. Usually I try to stop then. That's going to be like the last one, even if it even if it is still producing some hash, it's I'm pretty much stopped then. But yeah, just using the, you know, the home use medium size freeze dryer. It's been getting stuff done for me for for a while now and has enough space that, you know, I can produce as, you know, the amount that I want. I'm sure when I scale up, I'll probably end up, you know, getting larger freeze dryers with more trays and stuff like that. But as far as the rate that I want to produce stuff right now. So I'm not like oversaturating anything. It's just fine for me and it works perfect. You know, I'm rocking one of the low temp plates with the four by seven plates. And when I first got it, you know, I was just kind of like starting out in it. And so I didn't like have the money for the extras, like the electric pump to press it or or even the hydraulic one. So I ended up just <laughs> like getting a 20 ton press from like AutoZone or something like that. And, or, you know, and, uh, just get that right under the press. And, and it's been like enough pressure for me for sure. And it's not like it doesn't tire you out or anything. And I feel like you can really feel the, feel the hash bag on those plates, like, and just give it exactly as much pressure as needed. Yeah, that's funny and interesting. And also again, goes to show you, you don't need like all the stuff to make it happen. You can, you know, do things pretty simply sometimes without all the gear. So I think that's pretty funny. And, and again, just kind of going back to this idea that we've talked about, we're learning these things, whether it's air drying or whatever. If you do eventually get one that has a more automated thing, you'll have a better feel for it because you've been already developing your own feel, you know, manually, essentially via this other system. Right. Totally. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's all a process, you know, it's all part of the process and just work up from what you got and what you can do and try to do it the best that you can. Yeah, I agree. I told you, podcast doesn't have very fancy stuff, but hopefully what we <laughs> talk about is good. <laughs> Rocking it. <laughs> so a question, as an outdoor grower, do you see more contaminant in that first or second wash? Is that part of the reason that you say sometimes, for example? that third wash may be better? Or is that something that you're able to mitigate a lot with proper, you know, whether it's like cover cropping or doing things to prevent more dust and stuff in your hash? Yeah, like um, the spot that's uh, my lower elevation spot, I pretty much have the whole property done up with different types of cover crop and different fruits and vegetables and like 
whatever I can to cause as little as much dust as possible and anything like that. But I do notice that off of full terms, you can have a little bit more contamination from the melt in the first and the second wash, but you can still produce like crazy clean resin, you know, and out in full term sun, I feel like it's, it's harder to do because you have to really just put a lot of attention and love into those plants and be very aware of uh, all the environmental factors and such. But yeah, I do tend to pull a cleaner resin from my greenhouses. Usually that doesn't have like as much contaminant, but there tends to always kind of be a little bit fuller of a terpene expression from the full sun. So they both have their, their highlights. Yeah, for sure, man. I was telling you on the smoke break that out of all the things I've tried from you, which you know hasn't been like a ton, but the Tolimon from last year was amazing. Like it really was my favorite jar, I believe, out of all the ones that I tried. And I remember even commenting to you is like the look of it was just awesome, but it like had this green tinge to it. But I don't mean that in a negative way, not like chlorophyll. But it, yet it had this certain translucency to the resin and it was so flavorful and it was so good. And like, like I said, for me, it was my favorite jar. And you talked to me about how that was a full term, how it had been taken a little extra. I think it was off the Hugo bed. So it was just really interesting. So I, I think for me, it's interesting always to see a range of color of resin and how that doesn't necessarily like imply whether it's quality or not. That one was just like off the charts cool for me. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's uh, it's not always about, you know, having like the whitest ash possible. And it's it's crazy. Some of the terps that come out from from taking stuff a little bit, a little bit longer and, you know, a little bit higher potency as well. Yeah, I really enjoyed that run. You know, I definitely took those plants to like late October, full sun, Hugels, and it came out dank. Yeah, it was banana OG, papaya to dosi dough from Oni Seed Co. And and yeah, a lot of people really like that one. So I'm glad you enjoyed it too. Yeah, it was really good, dude. And, you know, out of all these different styles and growing, I know you mentioned right now you're rocking more like the raised beds. Do you think that that's giving you the best results for, you know, the practices? Yeah, I feel like that because I have a raised bed and a hugel right next to each other. And I don't notice a crazy amount of difference between the two. I would say maybe the hugel is a little bit harder to flush sometimes. Like if I'm running that one in a spring light depth, it tends to not flush out as quick. I think that there's something that has to do with that, with the Hugo just storing more nutrients, you know? And But other than that, I, I, there's not a huge difference that I totally notice between the, between the raised bed and the Hugo. And I try to give them both a really nice cover crop, chop and drop them, you know, all through veg. So I, I implement pretty much the same practices on both. And so I don't see too too crazy of a difference. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, Marley, I appreciate you hanging out with me all this time. I'll start winding it down and shooting some questions all over the place. You mentioned earlier, you know, seeing yourself potentially scale up. Is that something that's an ambition for you? And if so, you know, do you have like a particular timeline in mind for you and the brand? Yeah, yeah, it's it's in the vision right now. I'm just putting that energy out of the universe and and trying to plan for what that looks like for me. You know, it's definitely going to involve probably getting a larger a larger washroom 
or maybe just an entirely different washroom having two so that, you know, I could be washing every other day. I've been thinking about doing that right now as well, just getting another freeze dryer so that I can wash every day and, and have it drying. And um, because my freeze dryer isn't, it's pretty much in my washroom. So, you know, it puts off a good amount of heat when it's drying. So it's kind of hard for me to, to wash while it's going off. And even then I like, I like going straight from the hash bags to the freeze dryer. But yeah, I'm trying to visualize what, what that upscaling is going to be. I don't, think it's going to be into the legal market or anything like that. But I think it's going to involve probably, you know, getting another house and setting up a bigger setup there. Possibly because I do everything like on my on my own too. Like it's all single source. Like I grow it and hash it, press it, package it, you know, and, and everything in between. And so with that scaling up, I'm also realizing that I'm probably going to have to like bring someone in to help me like even if it's just with breaking down fresh frozen and like packaging to start that's definitely going to be part of the next phase but I've got a lot of like ambitions and stuff that I want to do in life as well and I'm always going to be making hash and trying to trying to produce a little bit more and a little bit better quality but also do want to do other things like own some type of like large vegetable and fruit farm you know with possibly like raising farm animals also and you know other things like my wife and I were going to Hawaii for our honeymoon pretty soon and I just kind of want to check out like spots for rent out there like I've, I've always been like a big smoothie fan like I make tons of smoothies you know and so I thought it would be cool to be able to open up some type of smoothie shack over there in the islands or something so I've got a lot of stuff I want to do, but yeah, I'm setting my visions and and trying to make the plans to to upscale my my hash hash making capacities pretty soon, probably in the next year or two. Yeah, that's cool, man. And yeah, congratulations to you and your wife. I know you recently got married. We talked about it briefly before, but yeah, yeah, pumped. It's pretty cool that you guys get to do that together and that you want to expand into other things, but at the same time. Also, you know, possibly grow the garden. Uh, one of the things that you and I talked about, which I can relate to, is this idea of doing almost everything yourself in a sense. And, you know, it's hard to find uh, that trust in, in other people to be able to help you bring that vision to life similar to how you want it exactly or, you know, how you see it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, every like, you know, I haven't had a lot of like straight jobs, but like, Every time that I do have one, it's a very common theme of like my coworkers telling me that I'm like working too hard. They're like, slow down. Like you do it. Like, why are you working so hard? You know, we've got this many days for this project. And I'm like, I just have a very like, go get it mentality. You know, if I'm, if I'm somewhere working, I'm, I'm going to like work as hard as I can and as smart as I can to, to try and get the job done, you know? And, uh, so yeah, I do bring that to the hash, you know, and it is hard for me to like work with other people because I just have a high standard. And it's also, you know, it's not the easiest like delegating stuff. I feel like you really have to be very good at communicating if you're going to like delegate to people on tasks to do. And, you know, big up to all the hash brands that that are able to do that, you know, and like, I know that single source is like a term, you know, and stuff, but 
a lot of hard work goes into into these brands that have like a big team. Like that's you know even more work, you know, in my opinion, because you really have to stay on top of a lot of different different fields and just making sure the QC is high in every one. There's a lot to be said for that, you know, just like there is doing single source and doing it all your own. They're both like making hashes. It's not like the easiest thing in the world, you know, and growing as well, you know, big up to all the hash makers just pumping it out, you know, on quality scale. Yeah. Like you said, they all have their challenges, whether it's completely single source, whether it's a team that's also considered single source or, or not. Yeah. They all have their varieties of, of challenges as anyone. I think that's putting out a great product consistently big ups to them because it's not an easy thing to do in any field or any capacity. You know, another thing that you talked to me about that has helped you out and being able to get this far, for example, with your brand or even your cultivation is like a belief in yourself while having a lot of passion for the plant. Uh, how far do you think that takes someone in being able to achieve things that they want to, for example, within this field? Yeah, I feel like your passion is just going to keep you ever curious about ways to do it better, you know, and to improve upon whatever techniques you're doing. And, you know, it takes a lot of passion for sure. And it also takes like confidence in, in your abilities to like execute, you know, and to and to get jobs done because, you know, there's only so much dreaming you can do. You really got to put in like the hard work too. you know, just be ready for like obstacles to come your way, like pretty much every day you have to, you know, plan for, for what could possibly happen next and just be on top of it, you know, but yeah, having, having that vision, the ambition, the confidence, I feel like is, is important and just doing what you love. You know, I feel like if you follow doing what you love, you're going to be, you're going to be happy, you know, in the end, no matter what, like you might, there might be times you have to work way harder than usual, you know, and and now that's just part of it, but you're always happy. So, yeah, that's true, man. It's definitely a nice thing to be able to do what you love. And like you said, it's not necessarily that it's easy or that there's not a challenge with it, but it certainly can be rewarding for sure. So, I'm going to put you in a little bit of a spot here. And this is something that I saw, I'm pretty sure, on Instagram at some point. Is you grew the blue sushi last year? Is this correct? Uh, so that one's a collab. That one's a collab I did with the ITAW Foundation. Okay, cool. Yeah. So you know the joke on the post was like, "Yo, you might have you know been able to get more for these jars based on what <laughs> happened with the jars uh, from Zushi." So I guess my question to you is, do you see? Charging, for example, a certain amount for a jar of hash as being too much? Or do you think that it's like whatever the market dictates? You know, you can you can kind of like do what you can if it's got if it's got the most like most rare, you know, like wants and everybody wants it and needs it. I feel like, you know, you can put a jar as high as you want, you know, but um, but yeah, I feel like generally it's you know, it's really hard to get that also, you know, so if you can, you know, more power to you. But, um, but yeah, I, I try to just keep everything in mind, just the same price and keep it like, keep it nice like that. I had like taken the material, like 
two or three weeks before before all that you know uh, hype around it started, <laughs> and so you know the I just kind of knew that it was it was coming you know for its time, and I could just see the trends going towards it. You know, he had the material. He gave me a list of the material, and he was like, "I don't know about that one. It's kind of a lower yielder, you know." And and I was like, "No, I'll, I'll take that one. You know, I don't mind." And like, and it just you know happened to be right on time. So that was that was perfect. But yeah, I know that they probably put a lot of effort and time into those jars. You know. Yeah, for sure. I think it's just interesting to get different people's take on that. And you know, like you said. You can charge whatever you want. That doesn't mean that people are going to pay for it. So I think that's what I meant more by like the market setting the price. Some people may think something of that. Some people may think other things of that. But it's just interesting to see as things develop, how even things like price points will be pushed, you know, eventually. You brought your brother up a few times. I know he works a lot with genetics now and he's been breeding and making some seeds. What is his Instagram so people can find him? Yeah, you can find him at Kinjana, K-E-N-J-A-N-A, organics. Just no underscores or anything. It's just all one word. And uh, yeah, he's just rocking it. You know, he's doing his thing with the breeding stuff. And I try to give him some nice clone genetics that I've watched to uh, to play with and to and to breed with. And he's just jumped fully into it and, and is producing some really nice stuff and just being able to see all the people that are growing his stuff this season, I'm really excited to to see all the results from those. And, you know, big props to him. You know, he's a great brother. And, uh, you know, I've always had a lot of respect and looked up to him. So I'm stoked that he's hopping into the breeding stuff. And I think it's going to be great. Yeah, that's cool, man. I got a chance to meet him at the Eagle Flash last year. He's a really nice guy, like good, good energy. And I know, like you said, he's been working some lines. So yeah, anybody out there looking for genetics, they can definitely hit up your brother, which is also kind of cool to see you guys. Like you started the journey together. He was smoking first, you were smoking second. And then like he went more, you know, the the genetic seed route. And you're like, you know, I'm going to go more the hash route. And, you know, now you both kind of have your specializations in that, but you both still cultivate. So I think that's a pretty cool connection to have. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. He grows amazing herb too and you know people love all the collabs that we do together he has some really nice nice genetics he likes to work with and and produces really good quality so it's it's nice to just give people that different different energy off the hash too because we we have different gardens you know we're different people and do you know things our own way so it's nice to like I feel like you can always kind of feel like a little bit of the energy of the person who's the hash maker through their hash and like their jar and stuff. And so collabing with him, it just brings a whole nother, a whole nother energy that I feel like people very much so appreciate. So it's really cool that we can work together and then I can give him feedback on how stuff washes, you know, and, and how people like it and, and all these types of things. And he can hook me up with great genetics, you know, they're acclimated to my, to my area. Yeah, it's very cool. It's very symbiotic. So yeah, that, that's pretty cool that you guys are still rocking it together. If you had to name the three most influential hash makers for you, who would they be? Influential? I would probably say I would probably say Resin Ranch first, because like early on when I was getting into hash making, he just 
And he still does. He puts out like a huge amount of information and it was just like really helpful for me. And he was running depths at the time and he's very influential person for me. Frenchie Cannoli was a big one too. Like I got to meet him at uh, one of these events and it was just a super cool time. Like I ran into him just like walking around and, and we ended up just like blazing like all these like uh, forbidden fruit fruit hash infused joints like outside for like a couple hours and just got to chop it up and I got to it was when I first started packaging like I was my raws and I was still in like the little parchment sleeves with the paper envelopes and uh you just you know that was the first thing you say he's like you want to get these into jars you know and <laughs> glass jars but um he gave me a lot of cool feedback right then as I was starting the journey and you know hooked me up with some fire forbidden fruit hash so that was really cool experience, super cool guy, very knowledgeable. And then I also have to say Brandon from third gen, you know, because he just, you know, he pushes the community so far to be their best. And, you know, to like, if you, if you want to be on that level, you got to be the best and like produce the best. And like, it's such like a motivating and encouraging thing for so many people, you know, me included, just like how he gives back to the community is huge too. You know, it was really touching just the toy drive that he does at the ego clash like that's you know benefited so many families and it's just it's just really cool you know and uh he's been a very influential person as well cool man i appreciate you sharing that with us final question if you could hear from someone on the podcast who hasn't been on the podcast and this is a good question for you because i actually know that you've listened to all the episodes who would it be yeah that'd be a that's a hard question for sure. I can think of like a good amount. If I had to say one or maybe two, it might be like Bloom Seed Co. I'd like to hear from him. Or maybe like Ati, Ati Genetics, Ati Hash. Those ones would be cool. I feel like they've just got a wealth of information and it'd be cool to hear from them. Cool, yeah, I agree. I think both of them could be cool and we'll see if we can make them happen. Great. Well, Marley, again, man, I really appreciate you hanging out with me like way long. Uh, I had a good time. Hopefully you did too. Uh, before we sign off, is there anything else you wanted to say? Uh, just big up to the whole community, you know, whether you're processing, consuming or farming, big up everyone, you know, we're, we're all in the same boat, you know, and, and um, in that cannabis is just a healing medicine for us all. And, and it's just a pleasure to be able to provide that to people. And, you know, I think we all just need to stay united and, and just keep crushing. And uh, I give thanks to every, every other single person in the community because it's just a really cool thing to be a part of. So big respect to everyone. Blessings. I love that. All right, cool, man. Well, again, I appreciate your time. And if you want to follow Marley, it's at Kenjana underscore extracts. And for those of you who stuck around with us this long, we appreciate you and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to the Hashish Inn. If you like the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review. Until next time.